1988, Guns N' Roses played a live show at the Ritz in New York City that MTV aired in its entirety, usually late at night or during Headbangers Ball. By this time, Guns N' Roses' debut album, Appetite for Destruction, had already been out for about six months. I'd heard most of it by osmosis, as it was heavily featured in our football locker room during the fall of 87. And I liked it, but I didn't love it. It was different than what I was used to and what my band, Zero Population Growth, was trying to play at the time. See, in 1987-88, my rock music influences were, I guess you could say, cleaner, without controversy. There were groups in heavy rotation on MTV like Poison, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Van Halen, but the Van Halen of the Sammy Hagar area. In other words, pretty much all rated G-Rock. Case in point, despite my mom fearing that Def Leppard's video for Foolin' may have had satanic cult images in the video, the band was wearing white jeans, polo shirts, and keds. Even the quote-unquote harder bands like Whitesnake, Rat, and Warren still came across with kind of a glossy sheen and an overproduced sound that was a far distant cry from the hard rock of the 70s. And being a freshman in my first school rock band, we catered to the kids and what was popular. It was rated G-Rock all the way. But that was about to change. I was first alerted to the Guns N' Roses Live Ritz concert when MTV started circulating Knocking on Heaven's Door as a video. And I was intrigued, to say the least. So I stayed up late that one Saturday night in February 1988, and I watched the midnight airing of the full concert, and I was blown away by it. But not because of the exceptional musicianship. Truth be told, it was like watching Randy Watson and coming to America. It was good and terrible. It was like the Star Wars 1977 Christmas special to the rest of the franchise. Drunken band members stumbled all over the stage. Slash actually unplugged his guitar by stepping on his own cord during one of his solos. And Axel... Well, Axel just seemed like he wanted to fight everyone, both his bandmates as well as everyone in the crowd. But it was dirtier than anything else I'd ever seen up to that point, and much different than what my band was trying to rehearse. It wasn't 80s rock at all. It wasn't metal. It wasn't glam. It was certainly not rated G. It was like its own genre. It was bluesy and dark like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, or the Roth era Van Halen before MTV bands started to bring hair metal to the suburbs. To be honest, it was kind of a mess of a performance, and that's what made it awesome. The energy with which this band had was infectious. It reminded me more of a punk group playing at CBGB's than a glam rock group in women's clothing that MTV tried to desperately lump them in with. The next morning, I ran out and bought Appetite for Destruction and gave it a deep dive, and I was immediately shocked to find out that they're actually much better musicians than what I'd seen live in that concert. And shockingly, the strength of that MTV performance seemed to boost their popularity as well. Soon MTV capitalized on them and on our collective peak interests and started rotating Sweet Child of Mine in Paradise City seemingly every hour. I became obsessed with all things Guns N' Roses and more specifically, this ominous and mythic figure of a guitar player named Slash, adorned in a gothic vampire's top hat who never seemed to show his face. And that's what we're here to talk about today, folks. The band who was coined in 1988 as the world's most dangerous group by none other than the Rolling Stones, Guns N' Roses. Down in the jungle, welcome to the jungle, 
iconic band of these proportions is simply too daunting a task for me to try and tackle by myself. So I brought in a rogues gallery of guests to help me explore and dissect the legacy and influence, both culturally and personally, of GNR. So to quote Guns N' Roses, let's get in the ring. Making up a whopping three-fifths of the greatest wedding party ever assembled in the New England area. On my right, now you see him, now you don't. The Izzy Stradlin of the party and FWR's legal counsel, Omar. What's up, Omar? How's it going, Neil? How's it going, gents? Happy to be here. <laughs> good, good. Glad you made it. The man in the middle and the only member to have a cocaine-induced seizure and be fired for it after hearing Axl Rose fuck his girlfriend live during the recording of Rocket Queen, the Steven Adler of this group, Naked Chris Sagunas. What's up, man? Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm sorry. I was just sitting there listening to it going, God, I hope this is for me. And it was. <laughs> it's like, well, I am, it, that wrote itself. <laughs> yeah, I, I am more excited to ever be a part of this. After so thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. And finally, he's soiled more Scottish kilts than Axl Rose himself. The mean machine, my brother from the same mother. Do I have to say his name? Do I have to speak his name? The big man, Ryan Daly. Bring us home, Ryan. Hey, uh, thank you for welcoming me as the, as the vocalist for, the, for our own show. Um, I, 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 was, I, I thought maybe you were going to sneak one of the Duff McKagan into one of those guys because I thought we were going to have to explain to the, the listeners that Tom Panarese, our the fifth guest on our Van uh, Halen show, was the Steven Adler. He's the one we fired. <laughs> well, that's actually true. That actually works so well. But, but Steven he Adler, wasn't showing up. He was unreliable. Sorry. That's true. But Steven Adler's life a little bit more mirrors chris and we have seen steven adler play live so this is true <laughs> so anyway so all right guys glad you're all aboard for this i'm really excited to do this podcast with you guys um so i just described my introduction to the band both audibly as well as visibly what brought me to them and i have a whole lot more to say about this stuff as we go on and i'm excited to do it but how about you guys do you guys remember how and when you first discovered the band omar let's start with you Sure. Um, I knew what Guns N' Roses was. Like I knew were like in the late 80s and around like 1990, I knew they were a band. I knew they were big. I could not pick a member out of a lineup. Although, I, mean, I guess that's more of an, a more appropriate analogy than I would have thought. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, like they, I, I couldn't have, you know, identified a song. There were two things that galvanized my attention. One was I was in fifth grade. It was the fall of 91, I believe. And one of the, one of the top news stories, it was either October or November, was they de- the debut of two albums by the same artist <laughs> at the top of the charts. That was so weird to me. It was so, like, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around the, the fact that, mm. like, A, uh, an artist or a band could release two albums uh, simultaneously uh, and B, that they would sort of rock it up to the top of the charts. And like that had a lot of cachet 30 years ago when you would do that. I mean, this was back in an era when record sales meant everything. I think they both sold something like a million copies each the first week. And even at a young age, I knew that was a huge deal. That was the first time they, they got on my radar permanently. And then the second time was a few months after that, MTV aired a uh, a tribute concert to Freddie Mercury. It was about four or five months after he had passed away. Um, and they, you know, it was probably, I mean, Neil, Chris, correct me. Like, it seemed like probably the biggest collection of musical talent probably since Live Aid. 
Yeah, I want to say it was something. I think it was Wembley Stadium too, and I want to say they had yeah. you know something, something like I, I don't know a hundred thousand people in that stadium. Yeah, it was it was it was crazy. It was like a hundred thousand people. And what I noticed, in addition to the fact that like it was the first time I'd seen them play, and you know they they flew the place apart. I mean, they were unbelievable. It was just like two or three tracks. But like the thing that really caught my eye was the fact that. Other than the surviving members of Queen and maybe Elton John, no one got a more enthusiastic reception than Guns N' Roses. And, like, understand, like, I'm pretty sure Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were there. I'm pretty sure the Zeppelin guys, the surviving Zeppelin guys were there. I'm pretty sure you two were there. But, like, at that point, like, Guns N' Roses was seen as, like, the premier American band. And, you know, I was upset from that point on. I was obsessed with them for a solid three or four years. And, and I think looking back on that from that Appetite for Destruction debut from like 87 to, you know, I think maybe 93 or so when they did their cover album, The Spaghetti Is, I don't think there's a band in America that mattered more. Like, I don't think there was a band of news or um or or attention anywhere nearly as much as guns and roses and like i fell into it um they were <laughs> they, they shocked me because of like how vulgar and crass they were um they but like the artistry blew me away even back then um i don't th- i actually don't think it's even close in terms of like cultural impact That's good stuff. I can't. I'm gonna. I want to explore a little bit more of that stuff too about the the crassness and the controversies that you mentioned too as we go into it because they were they were at that point the biggest group in the world. Um, Chris, how about you, man? Yeah, I, I mean, I remember when they first broke, and you know, like I think it was fall of '87 when uh, Welcome to the Jungle started getting heavy rotation, and I remember seeing that video, and it, you know, it's like one of those songs, one of those videos where you're just like your first reaction is what What is this? Like, you're not sure, is this good? It, it looks cool because it's just so new and it's just so different. It didn't seem or sound like anything else that was being played on TV. Right. And, you know, we were right in the midst, like you kind of said in your, in your introduction, of, you know, the glam metal era yeah. and yeah. the big hair and the makeup. And, and you know, the, and it was, you know, it's a radio-friendly metal. And this definitely yeah. was not that. And it was dark and it was kind of scary and it was really cool. <laughs> and somewhere between then and then the summer of 88, when Sweet Child of Mine just, you know, dominated the airwaves, I, I got the album. I couldn't tell you when. I mean, it, it was such a big deal at the time. It feels like it was probably issued to me at, at, at some point. <laughs> right. Like it was, it was just like you, you were required. Everybody in it. America got one. <laughs> yeah, if you were a t- if you were a teenage boy in America in 1987, then you were required to have uh, Appetite for Destruction. I think but they I, gave them out at Magic Waters. I think I think they did, and that's probably where I picked it up. But <laughs> but yeah, you know, I know friends of mine had had it, and I had heard it, and I mean, it, it, it didn't really coalesce for me, and really like like I'm into this band probably until after Sweet Child of Mine hit, mm-hmm. and I started like kind of listening to the album and really because it was definitely a lot harder 
at least harder edged rock than I had been listening to or been a fan of at that point. So yeah, it was like too. almost, yeah. So it was like initially, it was almost a little bit alienating where it was like, oh, this is like kind of hardcore. Like, who are these dudes? <laughs> And then, you know, they, they obviously had a big pop sensibility and they crossed over and, you know, that kind of, I guess, made it okay for me and for some other people that, you know, that might have not thought this was their cup of tea at the outset. And then, I mean, by the time the usual illusion albums were coming out, you know, in 91, I mean, I was a massive fan and I was just like everyone else every year, every few months, he'd be getting updates about when's the album coming out. And, you know, you can't <laughs> right. wait for new music from them. And, you know, I was one of the hundreds of thousands of people that waited in line at midnight when it went on sale and bought me. And I, I still remember that. So, That's... but yeah, I mean, I, I remember that from the outset. And then for me, it was just, I mean, they were just so everywhere and that eventually they just kind of won me over. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited as we go on too, because I want to, as we go forward, once we get to the bridge between the two, the appetite and user illusions, I'm kind of curious to know, like, if you, if one album made you more of a fan than the other, and I'm just kind of curious and we'll get to that as we go on. Um, Ryan, how about you, man? Well, growing up in the same household as you, it, it sort of filtered through you in my, uh, my experience with the, the band. <laughs> I guess I kind of echoing a lot of what they were saying. Like I, I remember sort of passively or through osmosis, just knowing all of these bands, knowing about Poison and Motley Crue and these other glam rock hair metal bands of the time. And just kind of seeing the videos for Welcome to the Jungle and watching MTV and, and looking at these. And it, they just seemed, I don't know if bigger was right back then, but they just seemed a little bit angrier. They, mm-hmm. I, I guess the word I would use is they seemed like they had more bite um, they there there seemed like more of an edge, almost a a hint of menace, um, where they didn't just want to rock; they also really wanted to, like break a bottle over somebody's head, um, <laughs> like like I like you know fifty fifty how much they wanted to do one or the other. You know, they they had the hooks; their music sounded great, but that edge was also a little bit. I mean, for for being the youngest of this group, I was kind of almost a little bit off putting, you know. But again, I just kind of grew, and and I think through you, I associated them with you working out or going to football practice or things like that. Me, I don't know. I, I want to say the the Welcome to the Jungle was used in was it the movie The Program? I have like I have a like a sense memory, a connection of that song with a scene of people practicing football in a movie. And when I saw that, it felt like. It felt like I had already seen that, or I had already made that connection because of you. Interesting. Um, that that might have been the case, Chris. Do you remember? What, weren't they featured? At, didn't they have cameo roles in in Clint Eastwood's Deadpool? They did. Yes. Yeah. And Welcome to the Jungle was featured in Deadpool. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. That's and what it was actually lip synced by Jim Carrey. <laughs> that's right. Oh my <laughs> because God. Jim Jim Carrey played the rock star, <laughs> the lead singer. Yeah, that would be the heroin overdose, and, Johnny. And Yes, and they made it his song. And so at the beginning of the movie is the video <laughs> they're filming where he's lip syncing awesome. that song. It's absolutely fucking ridiculous. That, and that Neil, is- Neil, real quick, like one of the things, I just want to jump in real quick and say like one of the things that struck me was, I think it's very appropriate that four of the five people who were, four of the five guys that were talking about Van Halen a few months ago on this podcast are talking about Guns N' Roses because I find a very distinctive parallel between the two groups, um, I mean, yeah, you can talk about like the, the how, how good the songwriting was, like how good the, the technique was. But the thing about Van Halen that is very true, even more so possibly of Guns N' Roses is like it's about the music and it's about so much other stuff, too. Like 
where like the off-screen, off-stage like drama at times either paralleled or threatened to eclipse the sure. actual like music. Mm-hmm. And that is sure. saying an awful lot because right. the music was so damn good. The music made such like a visceral impact. The music was so ambitious. And yet, like when I think about the legacy of Guns N' Roses, and we'll get into all of this, um, but I think it's worth mentioning at the outset, is that so much of it was about so much more than the music. It was about the drama and it was about like the anxiety of figuring out when the next album would be. And like these guys were so dangerous yeah. in every sense of the word that like, you know, I, I they had entered the zone for me where in the mid 90s, I was like, you know, anything could happen with these guys. Like they could like release an album in 1997 and have it and knock it out of the park. Or Axl Rose could be found dead in a, ho- a Vegas hotel room. And neither <laughs> right. of those would surprise me. And I yep. think that is very, very true. So I just think it's very appropriate that four of us uh, that we're talking about Van Halen uh, and the, the attendant drama surrounding that band are reuniting to talk about Guns N' Roses. Because I think the parallels are pretty uncanny. Yeah. Uh, again, I do want to pour one out for Tom Panarese, who we had to fire <laughs> because he partied too hard for us. This <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're partying too hard, Tom. Um, no, that's that's awesome that you guys, Ryan and Omar especially, too. I think it's really, it's it's almost like, I don't know if this is the right word. I want to say it's kind of impressive that this band left an impression on you guys because you guys were coming at this. I mean, Appetite came out when you guys were like 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that, where Chris and I were were teenagers. So obviously this is a, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of neat. Of of course it's going to impact you guys a little bit differently. And, you know, Ryan, I'd probably dragged you kicking and screaming to everything. It said, you need to listen to this because this is good. And you were like, okay. Well, well that was the, the next thing. You can now correct me because, again, this is my, I, I'm sure because I was so young, I'm, I can't rely on my memory. But I remember you getting Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Maybe it was like a Christmas present or something. But were those... Were those like the first CDs that we had or something like that? Like, oh man, um, I, they were my first CDs. They were my first CDs. I, I have like a weird mm. memory. Like, those were the first times that I actually held a CD because, like, the box was just weird. Like, it wasn't a cassette tape. It was like there were like these longer right. boxes that they were packaged right. in. Yeah, and maybe maybe it wasn't. Maybe like you had you had your own or something like that. But I I think those were the first time that I saw compact discs, and I knew and I had to learn how to play one of those in the cd player yeah you know that's a good question i don't i, I do remember getting the disc i know that they were they were probably maybe the first of a handful of cds that i got that might have been uh, yeah, boy i couldn't i couldn't tell i mean i'm sure i had cds before that because those albums came out when i was already in college but the one thing i do remember was i want to say it was something like either downtown or wherever indy kelb you could get them. I didn't get them at midnight like Chris did, you know, but I remember getting them and there was like the line and everybody was getting them. Everybody was buying mm-hmm. them the same thing. And I remember almost, I would say 95% of the people in line had both discs. And then there was like a girl in front of me that just had use your illusion too. Cause you could be mine was on it. And right. I remember, and I remember everybody looking at her like, wait, you're not getting the other one. And she was like, well, I don't know any songs off that one. Fuck out of here. Like, well, go home. You, well that's, your that's why it's, it's that reason is why use your illusion Two sold more copies. It, yeah, 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 by, by one. That, yeah. <laughs> no, it, 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 yeah, it did. It sold a few more. It's uh, a little bit of a higher selling album. And when they both debuted, it, they were one and two. It was two that was number one and right. one that was number right. two because of that, because it was the one single that had been released at that point. Yeah. yeah. Even though I think. Thank God, people, Terminator 2. And, exactly. <laughs> 
Even though I think, and I don't know, we talk about this. I, I think Usual Illusion One's the better album, but you know, whatever. Well, let's. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but that's, exactly. I, I do want to have that conversation as we go. Um, okay, so so when we decided to do this show, we kind of tossed around a few of the formats. We could have simply ranked their songs or albums, but in actuality, they they've kind of released a surprisingly few number of albums. <laughs> so for a Hall of Fame band, you know, with right. their impact and legacy. As Omar said, it kind of goes a lot farther than just their studio releases. They're a bigger band. You would think this band would have like 15 albums, and they don't. So I think rather than just ranking them, let's kind of go chronologically by era. We'll start with the early days of, of Live Like a Suicide, the Appetite, and GNR Lies, those releases. And then I suppose, just to keep it chronological, um, I what I'll probably do, and you guys feel free to jump in but we can include the recently released uh appetite demos that popped up on the massive box set that came out a few mm-hmm. years ago um like shadow of your love and they did a cover of jumping jack flash and there were some things i think those we got to kind of include in that era um and then we'll move on to the use your illusion era which we started to talk about a little bit we'll talk about that all the way through the breakup of the band in 96 and then finally we'll do everything else from chinese democracy and that <laughs> whatever you want to call it through slash aside projects up to the not in this lifetime reunion tour. So let's get into it. And I get right off the bat, right into probably app appetite for destruction. a ton of respect for this album, like immeasurable respect for the historic place of this album, where it belongs. Uh, as Chris was kind of describing, like how when this one came out, having to experience this just vicariously through other people's accounts, but how new it was, how mm-hmm. refreshing in an almost kind of scary way, the way anything that is radically new and radically different can be. Um, and just the, the strength of this album from just so many, so many great hits. And, and this is one of those albums where you can play start to finish. Um, again, you know, I compare it to some of those other ones, but it just feels bigger and better than the other rock bands of that, that era. Um, like the, but there's, there's, as again, as like both you and Omar were mentioning, there's like real musicality that is a strength of this. That the hooks, the music, like the blues influences, mm-hmm. uh, Axel's just vocals. Uh, it's he's got that high that a lot of those like glam rock bands have, like that falsetto, but it's not quite that. It's more raspy. Um, it's it's a band that you just kind of feel that the members are characters. Um, they they have a kind of like signature identity that you can piece together from their looks and from their attitudes and their their way they play, and just like it it, it shows kind of their reputation. So um, it is an album that I really respect, possibly more than I actually enjoy it. Um, I think it is a great rock album, and I understand mm-hmm. its its historic place and that it's a linchpin in rock and roll history. Um, but it's not one that I play a lot. 
hmm. compared to the use your illusion ones. So I'll come back to that. So. Okay, cool, cool. Um, if you, what would be, what would you say is like your standout track off the album? Um, I mean, all, all of the singles really. I, I think if I if I picked a favorite among those, like "Sweet Child of Mine," although the movie Step Brothers almost ruined it with <laughs> with uh, with Adam Scott, Catherine Hahn, and their kids singing oh my in, God. in the car. Oh my um, God. I, no, I can't. I can't hear the song without actually pitching them through like the harmonies in the car. Um, but it is it is a great song. Of those of the other hits in there, uh, just listening to it again, I remind myself how much I really like my Michelle. those two would be my favorites yeah so that's interesting to hear you say that ryan how you feel about that album because you know when we're discussing like ranking their albums that feels like a futile effort for me for sure. guns and roses because i i think it's clearly appetite for destruction and i i would argue that their entire legacy as great as they are that the reason they got inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame on the you know their first year they were eligible is that album and you know because they don't have the body of work that you know like you said you know it's like you would think they would have 15 albums they should yeah. have 15 albums yeah. Yeah. and they don't that's true they should <laughs> they only have three real albums exactly and honestly if appetite for destruction is the only album they ever made i feel like their legacy wouldn't be much smaller i mean it's that powerful of an album album and you know for me i mean it's it's one of the albums i consider perfect i mean you know i don't think there's any skips on that album i mean Maybe the weak link, you know, I was listening to it preparing for this is Anything Goes uh, on, <laughs> right. on the second side. But like, that's only in comparison to the other songs on there, which are all just amazingly great. And like, that song on its own is actually a pretty good song. I mean, if that was like on a Motley Crue album or something, they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's a good song. But sure. like, it's almost, it's almost a throwaway on that album. I mean, it, you know, in terms of like even picking a favorite song on that album, I mean, I don't know that I could. I mean, it, it's, it's, they're all so good. I mean, it, it, just the way the whole album's put together with the gun side and the roses side. And yes, you know, it the, is carefully crafted. I'll give it you is that. very carefully crafted. I mean, it's, it's got, in terms of like how they crafted the album in like song order, I, I can't think of too many albums that did it better. Because it, it's just perfect the way those first five songs are just, I mean, just you're getting punched in the face with every new track. And then it all kind of, you know, you reach that crescendo of like Paradise City and then you kind of change gears. Then you got to flip it over. Yeah. Yeah. You change gears for that second side. And but it's still just as impactful. And then, you know, it all builds up to Rocket Queen. And it's just I mean, yeah, it's like the, it's a it's a it's a whole package. I mean, you know, I mean. I, I love, obviously, Welcome to the Jungle, Night Train, It's So Easy. Out to Get Me has always been a favorite of mine. I guess maybe because it almost feels like a deep in comparison because it doesn't get as much uh, recognition, I suppose, compared to the other songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, every song on there is just a great song. So, yeah, I, I think it can't be overstated how great that album is and its importance in rock and roll history. Agreed. Agreed. Omar, you, you started to talk about something really interesting and I, I swear you kind of read my mind in these weird, the, these comparisons to like a, a Van Halen type of reference thing. There's a I lot was just of, about to go there with the debut. Well, I think it's well, one of the well, good. I, I want to, I want to ask yeah. you about that because it's still kind of the same, you know, they still have, they have these same like similar archetypal 
characters uh, in the band, you know, the, that the leading guitar player, that's just this like menace to the music industry. I, I mean, in terms of talent and then the lead singer, that's always a little bit off the rails. Now, as Ryan kind of described, you know, I would, I would probably say the main difference between like a David Lee Roth and an Axl Rose is David Lee Roth was like a party guy, like a frat guy. Also, David Lee Roth also had his tongue planted firmly in cheek. Yeah. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the time. Yeah. Whereas like Axl, believed his bullshit i mean like axel committed to the bit you know like (laughs) axel was a for whatever you can say about him like he is always very very serious in his songwriting and whether it's hits the mark or goes wildly off the rails like i don't think he ever approached like crafting a song with like the sort of detached campiness that Roth sometimes did um you know so so but you know when you talk about these two figures and like of course we'll get into that and I'll I'll circle this back to the debut like I think that you know you're talking about again in terms of potential energy because I think another parallel with Van Halen is and this is a theme I'm going to hit you guys over the head with is like I look at Guns N' Roses and I look at like what could have been is just (laughs) as is just as imposing as what they gave us so yep. Chris is absolutely right that if yep. they had just done Appetite for Destruction, so like I'm on Team Chris in terms of the impact of Appetite for Destruction, if they had just done Appetite for Destruction, like their legacy would have been secure. But because of the towering like like abilities of both of these guys to say nothing of Duff and Izzy, like I I think that they left just a whole lot on the table. Now when I you talk about Appetite for Destruction you know, the parallel with Van Halen, like reaches fruition because like, I think alongside that first Van Halen album, I don't think there are very many other debut albums that have changed the landscape as much. Um, And I think it, it changed the landscape, like in terms of like, it was genre busting. Like Neil, Mm -hmm. you, in your introduction, you, 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 you brought up the contrast of very effective, very effectively with these sort of safe, like, like corporate, types of hair bands which were slowly yeah, like strangled yes they were slowly strangling you know the the life out of the culture and, and and there was something very very from the moment you hear those opening you know like the, the opening sounds of welcome to the jungle you know like you are hooked there there is nothing safe there is nothing treading water there is nothing like they're not taking the long view of anything they're like being, they're very visceral um, and so I just think from the opening licks of that saw of that album, you know, that like sort of anthropologically, like we are in for something very, very different. Like, I think it split the genre completely because you had to like really, really pick the wheat from the chaff. Like when you talk mm-hmm. about those eighties bands and yep, like in terms yep. of call, and, and we're cheating a little bit by calling it a debut because they did that live for like a suicide EP, which like got them on the map. But when you look at that album, another thing that, that sort of comes to mind, along with the fact that it's it's the, the songwriting is so tight and so visceral, and like I don't think there's a weak link in that chain. Um, I also think what what's notable is that like they are firing on all cylinders creatively in terms of like Axel with the lyrics, like Slash's guitar work, and like making it theatrical without like going off the rails. Like as great as the Use Your Illusion albums are, you can really sit down and say, okay. This bit was a little bit self-indulgent. This is a bit where like Axl Rose is like, I am the, the next Elton John. The, but there is not an ounce of fat on Appetite for Destruction. Um, nope. It is a very clear mission statement about who they are. And I don't think in terms of an, a mission statement 
Like, I don't think there's a debut album by a band or an artist that it like hits as viscerally. And the, the other thing I would say about it is you guys got to remember it was a slow burn. You yes. know, yeah, the album took a really long time about to, a year. yeah, to make its impact. Like people went apeshit for it in like 88, yep. but it had been around for like seven, eight, nine months. This wasn't an instance where, you know, you, people heard Welcome to the Jungle or Sweet Child of Mine, like immediately when the album dropped and made it a hit. No, no, no. Like they sold their wares. And and like not since Thriller, I think, um, or Purple Rain or Born in the USA had an album grown so much over time. Like it, it really took time to breathe, but I think the journey was worthwhile. And in terms of individual tracks, I think Paradise City is like a perfect song, perfectly encapsulates <laughs> what they were all about. I am very partial to Mrs. Brownstone, but yeah, I don't think Mr. there's a weak Mr. track Brownstone. on it. Miss, I'm sorry, Mr. Brownstone. <laughs> I don't think there's a weak track on it. Like I love My Michelle. Um, I, I think the singles were perfectly chosen. I think, you know, when you are in a when you're in a bar and you hear Sweet Child of Mine, like you're home. And that's yeah. been the case for like 35 years. Um, so, so yeah, I don't think the, the impact of that album can be understated. But I just think it's really important to remember two things. One, like visceral mission statements um, from a band with something to prove. And two, it took a while. It took a while for it to conquer everybody. But once it did, like, like you could not forget about that. Yeah. Hey, can, yeah. Can I just say that I would, I don't know what it would be, but I would love to hear what, whatever the song Mrs. Brownstone would be. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I would love to hear what that is. That sounds like, I don't know, like, so like maybe like a, a an all girl band covers it and changes it. I don't know, but I, I want that now. I, I, I'm on board. Band. Then that all girl group could do a, a song called My Michelle, but it, Michelle could be a French male. Could be just my, my Mike. I don't my, my Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just to, real quick, like to build off something Omar said, which is a point I wanted to make and I, I forgot, but um, they, you know, they were separate from the rest of the bands. It's important to note that after grunge broke, after Nirvana and Pearl Jam started dominating MTV, Guns N' Roses was the only band of that era that was still getting play. Yeah. The other bands went away. They were gone. And Guns N' Roses was still like in heavy rotation. So that's, I think of, they weren't you know, just gone, Chris. I think they were exposed. Like, and, right. and yeah, yeah, like to your yeah. point, to your point, the, the, the reason that Guns N' Roses were able to hang on those first couple of years in the 90s was because they transcended, like, what exactly. in retrospect is a musical genre that has probably aged more poorly than just about any pop music category, pop rock music category than I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to, you know, my I, I kind of already talked about how I kind of discovered the album, so I'm not going to retread my own steps. But I will, I don't know if this has, I think that this, I may be coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective from you guys, though, because I got the album after I saw that live concert. So my reaction to them was a little bit more, I, I mean, like some of the songs, like I wasn't a huge, I mean, obviously everything Chris Omar, you guys said the album is almost perfect. It, it, you know, it's, it's, those songs are iconic, but surprisingly, if somebody was to ask me my top three songs off that album, they wouldn't be the singles. My, my mm -hmm. in this, in this, I would probably say because of seeing multiple iterations of live performances, I would always have out to get me and night train on that list. And then my favorite song off the album has always been rocket queen. And yeah. I, there's, and it's just something weird. And I think it's because of, I have a distinct memory of just live performances of those. And maybe not just from that show, but from multiple tours and things like that. So it, like seeing those songs played live and then Rocket Queen lately is, you know, it goes into like an extended 10 minute guitar solo in the coda section of the song before the, the second mm -hmm. 
have it's you know it's just fantastic so but those god like you guys said i mean those those songs like you it's it's hard to even name it's hard to even list them it's almost pointless well i don't think there's a wrong answer to yeah, whatever right. song you pick is your favorite on an album they're all great yeah yeah i mean anything goes might be the wrong answer but sure i would, I would even allow that <laughs> i think i think that's funny because that's probably the one song i forget about all the time well there you go <laughs> Um, anything you guys want to say about GNR Lies, which was, you know, for our listeners that we should point out, that was the 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 kind of like stopgap till their next, you know, studio albums and things. Um, well, you, you guys, guys can to- you guys can be, like confirm this. It felt like a simultaneously an attempt to quickly cash in on the the sort of long term goodwill that had happened with Appetite for Destruction, Destruction, but it was done in a very credible and serious way, right? Like patience. I, I think was a single. I mean, it, it's not oh, a yeah, single. It was like yeah, that know, was a damn memorable song. But like it, I think it was the purpose was to introduce the live like a suicide material uh, along with other stuff. But it didn't feel hastily thrown together. Like it felt like an attempt to sort of like take advantage of the fact that they were in the 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 eye of the storm. But it didn't feel cobbled together. It didn't feel like artificial. Like I, there's no doubt that it does not stand alongside appetite or the illusions as like this singular defining achievement but like it's still good and it's still like served its purpose to like continue to sell their wares to this like large market of people yeah i mean it's not you know it's not really an album it's an ep and yeah and obviously that first side was the live like a suicide release you know they've been released independently before but yeah, I know I agree with Omar on that. And, I, and again, I remember you know when that came out and you know being in that position where like everyone was just hungry for new music by Guns N' Roses, and yep, they gave yep. it to us. And it, you know, it was a stopgap. It wasn't a yep. full album. It had new material on that. For most of us, it was all new material. We you know nobody at that point had really heard the other stuff unless you were some super fan from like '85 and had picked up the you know the the, the EP when it originally came out. I mean, I do remember, I can't remember if it was the Grammys or if it was the American Music Awards, but when Guns N' Roses performed live and they debuted Patience, and it blew everybody's mind because they were this, you know, hard-edged, hardcore band, and then they come out with this, you know, really lovely acoustic ballad. It's a a great song. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, it's it's a really cool video. And, you know, the other stuff on there is great, too. I mean, I, I really have always liked it. Said woman, take it slow, it'll work itself out fine. All we need is just a little patience. Said sugar, make it slow, and we'll come together fine. All we need is just a little patience. I did revisit, um, you know, one in a million, 
uh, to see how that oh, oh works no. in 2021, and not well. <laughs> oh um, God! It's, it's, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a great song musically. It's got a great melody, and but man, there's just it, it's a really ugly song, and yeah. just the like way- that, that's the best. That's the defining thing about them, right? Like one in a million. I'm, like epitomizes the fact that like there's so much bad along with all the good with that band. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about it is, and this is what's so you know frustrating about it is, you know, and and you're, I think you're right, Omar, in terms of how they you know are, are just as well known for the drama. But the drama was all Axel. I mean, the other guys just yep, wanted to play right. music and, and and do drugs, and then eventually they stopped doing drugs, just wanted to play music. And Axel was just like, you know, no, I'm getting in fights with my neighbors, and I'm getting in fights with this person, and I'm attacking audience members. And and the thing about one in the million, you know, and and we'll circle back to this when we get to the Usual Illusion albums and talk about Don't Damn Me. <laughs> which is about that song or about the, the blowback he got from it. But it's not so much that he says the things that he says in there. It's that he's saying, I mean, he knows what he's doing. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, he's he doing also, it. he tried to defend it too. Yeah. Well, he doubled down. He, yeah. And quite frankly, fuck that. I mean, yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> he, he, you can hear the way he says the lyrics where he's just like leaning into it going, yeah, this is going to piss people off. Yeah. Exactly. And then of course, and then when it did piss people off, you know, he had to write an epic poem about it. And it's just like, come on, dude. <laughs> it's like, so it's this whole thing of him inviting this drama. And it, it's just a shame because like, I'm not sure how I feel about that song now. I've always loved that song, but man, it's just, it's, it's a hateful song. Yeah. It didn't so, age well. It did not age well. And you know, the other songs on there, Used to Lover is a, you know, a fun little ditty. And then of course you have, you know, the acoustic version of You're Crazy, which is also good. So I mean I think overall it's it, it's a you know it's a good little you know it's a stopgap and yeah. it, it's it doesn't have a place any more important than that I don't think in 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 terms of their legacy you know rock and roll history. Yeah, Ryan, anything? I actually I never heard the whole thing until the early two thousands. Like this was like the last of their initial like album stuff that I actually heard. I I don't think I even realized that Patience was from this. So I got it eventually, and I the live stuff didn't really do much for me and then on the mm-hmm. other side patience was okay but like even like as early as the early 2000s when i listened to one in a million and for anybody listening to this who who isn't aware it's got racial slurs and homophobic slurs you know he, he's he goes everything mm-hmm. like you're saying, i would not suggest this about most songs but i would say no nah, i don't listen to it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but but it would no it was a thing that i had i was like after listening to it i think i listened to it once and i was like i'm kind of embarrassed to have this in my collection i don't want this yeah. anymore and i got rid of the album on top of the racism and homophobia, it's a little xenophobia in there too. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it, he's got the trifecta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you I certainly, think it's also you certainly to, don't want to, to be re- stuck at a stoplight playing that song. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, and just, just, just to emphasize the point that like, it was a stopgap, like mm-hmm. their whole lives were oriented around pushing, promoting and touring behind appetite for destruction from the moment it dropped in, in 87 to when they started recording like the use your illusion sessions in like 1990, like that it was all about appetite for destruction. I think, I think lies is fine for what it is, but like it is, it should not be considered like a major entry in their discography. Sure. No, I I agree. Totally. I agree. Totally. And and just a a little bit of trivia on that too. Despite the fact that the original EP was called live, like a suicide and it sounds like it's live. There are no live tracks on that album. That's correct. That is actually correct. (laughs) <laughs> they, they're all studio audience. They just yeah. dubbed audience, exactly. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the only thing I have to add, everybody's pretty much said, I think we're all kind of on the same page with it. I, I just think, I think that you, whoever's decision it was to make patients be the follow-up stopgap to mm-hmm. bridge, to keep, to tide people over, I think was brilliant because I got to think if I was the band at that point coming off the success of the bam, bam, one, two, three of welcome to the jungle, sweet child of mine in paradise city. And somebody said, okay, now until your next album come out, release this uh, acoustic single. I got to think the band would have been like, no way, dude, we'll get killed in the press. Like nobody wants to hear that. Um, So the fact that it was, that was the choice, you know, whether, you know, some people don't like the song. Some people, you know, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent towards that. I think it got overplayed, but I think it's a really damn good ballad. It just got overplayed. But I, I think that that's just, it's a remarkable choice to put out there and wet people's appetite and show a completely different side of the band than what you were used to. I think that that's yeah. just brilliant. So, um, okay, well, I guess that's this is the next, and arguably their most area area. Um, I, the double releases of Use Your Illusion one and two, which I should point out for our listeners out there, it's not a double album, and we've kind of already touched on that. But I've heard other people talk to me before about like, oh, the double album. And I'm like, it wasn't a double album; it's two separate albums. Um, right. Now, this era was marked by a bit of band member turnover. Um, our lovable favorite drummer Stephen Adler was fired shortly after recording began. Um, I want to say he, I think he's only credited on the album. Chris, you can probably attest to this. I think he only played on civil war and that is correct okay um and then he was replaced by cult drummer matt sorum uh izzy left the band um like a month after the the albums were released he did play on the tour and chris you saw that tour so we'll come to you in a minute but uh izzy then left because you know there was all kinds of talk some i've heard arguments that izzy was sober and the band wasn't so he couldn't he didn't want to be around him anymore and then later he came back and retraced those steps and said no it was just axel he didn't want to be in the same room with axel anymore there's all kinds of stuff but izzy has apparently he has no desire to be in guns and roses we should point out before we come full circle that he has popped up here and there and played with the band again at various stops um so it sounds like they they're all of them he just doesn't want to be in the band so let's get into these two albums and subsequent tour chris you actually saw this band tour now you saw them tour before the albums came out right that is correct so i saw them what do you remember talk about that that's the thing that's the bummer about it is not a whole lot because we all sit around going that song sounds cool i can't wait for the album to come out in three months but you know that by the time they did welcome to the jungle as the encore we're like okay we know one now but but it was cool to see because you know i mean they they, you know the the performance was great the musicianship was great i you know i look back and i haven't done it recently like you know like you can find the set list online uh you know for pretty much any concert and i looked to see you know what was the set list then i I did this a couple years ago just i ran alpine valley right that's correct and it was the very it was the opening tour or date on that tour so this would have been in june of 91 i think 
Yeah, a buddy of mine that I uh, went to college with, I was with Ken, and there was some other guys that we went to school with. One of them had, their parents had a house at Lake Geneva, and we... Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah we, we, we partied there. That's a good uh, time. Friday night, the show was Saturday. We drove to the show and opened, and it was a great one-two punch with a great time. But yeah, I mean, my takeaway from that is, like, I don't remember, I mean, I remember enjoying myself, but, like, I didn't know any of the songs. So it was just like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they played You Could Be Mine at some point, which would have been the, you know, had probably just been released as a single. But yeah, so it was kind of weird. I, I almost kind of wish I'd seen them later in the tour. But obviously, I mean, I wasn't going to turn down the chance to see Guns N' Roses at that point. Right. So yeah, saw that concert. And obviously, you know, the single You Could Be Mine came out early part of the summer and I mean I, I remember having the you know the, you remember the kiss singles I had the cassette single of that song <laughs> right, right and right. it had Civil, Civil War was the B-side you know I drive back and back and forth between home and school and that's like a half hour drive and I would just listen to that song and you know I might let Civil War play because I've never been a big fan of that song but I might let it play out but for the most part I would just fast forward to it and just play You Could Be Mine over and over You Could Be Mine was one of those perfect like when a band makes a big splash, you know, they, they and then they're they're kind of out of the limelight for a while, then they come back and they had that perfect single where it's just like, yes, this is what I was waiting for, <laughs> and it's that's that's what you could be mine was. That was like, this is what the Guns and Roses I've been waiting for. the independent record store that was by the junction record ref that's that's where we went and got it i remember waiting in line at midnight to get that and yeah i got the albums everyone you know all the guys on my floor got the albums and then we all went you know back to the dorm rooms and you know popped on the headphones and just started listening to it and i mean if anything you know in terms of their releases i mean appetite for destruction and these two in the middle and then chinese democracy i mean i feel like the two bookends you almost have the least to say about them in terms of there's just not a lot of exploration that needs to be done, I don't think. At least from my perspective. Appetite's an undisputed classic, right. and Chinese Democracy is kind of a meh. Whereas <laughs> I think the most interesting albums they did are probably these two. For, for good and for for good and for bad. I mean, you know, it's not a true double album, but like a lot of double albums, um, a lot of filler, a lot of stuff you're like, whoa, is this on here? Um and what I also find interesting too is is unlike the first album you start to see where the songwriting credits are per the individual band members as opposed mm. to written by guns and roses uh-huh. and so you get a real feel for what each of these guys are bringing to the to the table and on listening to these again these albums again and i mean there's you know great songs on there that i mean like you know locomotive and don't damn me are probably the two best songs my two favorites Locomotive is probably a contender for my favorite Guns N' Roses song. It's I, I think it, it's emblematic of everything they're about. And you know, as I listen to these songs, particularly these you know these more the, the songs that are more popular, more well known from the, from these albums. You know, like those those songs are pretty well known at least among the fan base. And then you have the singles like November Rain and Don't Cry. You know, I mean, they released a billion singles off of this. I think they were two <laughs> years past the release, and it was like you know. 
I mean, I remember, I, I think, I think Neil, I was already living in California two years after it was released when they released the final single. Or at least <laughs> Garden the final of Eden. Single, Garden of Eden. Was, was that the final one? Was that after? I'm pretty, uh, sure, yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure because it was like, it was like 1994. I was like, really? Are we still doing this? Yeah, All right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's like 15 singles off those two albums. Yeah. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, they kept coming. I mean, I, they, they I even coming. discovered they were like. Yeah, there was like yesterday's had a video I didn't even know about. Yesterday's had like a video. <laughs> a strange uh, Garden of Eden. Uh, the Garden had a video. I mean, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was a lot. But so, you know, as I look at some of these songs now, and it's always an interesting thing to look at the music of your youth and how you you how how it hits you as an adult. And you know, I think it's it's a real testament to great music if no matter where you're at in your life like the music still impacts you the same. Like, you know, you, you know, the, the, mm, very well said. Me, yeah, well, yeah. Me, you and Ryan like obviously did, did that podcast on sign of the times of Prince. I've, I've been yeah. a Prince fan, you know, longer than I've been a fan of any other music. And I've never, it's never, it's never not impacted me. I mean, Prince is timeless. Yep. Whereas, you know, a lot of the music with guns and roses, you know, it's very much of its time in a way. And a lot of it didn't age well. I mean, I think Appetite for Destruction is spared most of that because so much of it is rock and roll fantasy, and that kind of makes it timeless. Like, I, I didn't really connect with it in terms of, you know, what was being said at the time, other than, wow, this sounds cool, and these guys sound like they're badasses, and I kind of still feel the same way now. Whereas, as they, you know, they start getting more personal in the songwriting with the Use Your Illusion albums, a lot of it just doesn't hit me as well. You know, and like I referenced one in a million and then how that ties into don't damn me. Don't damn me is the song that Axl Rose wrote in response to the backlash he got from one in a million. Now don't damn me as a song. I love it's one of my favorites. Me too. From the two albums. One of my favorites Guns N' Roses song. That song might have the distinction of having the single most lyrics written for a three minute song. (laughs) Yeah. And because I mean, he's got a lot of lyrics. Like I said, he wrote an epic poem. And he and he sings them super fast. Yeah, now, right. <laughs> I would argue that, and this is going to be the thesis I, I, I've developed about Guns N' Roses and their music is with, you know, with this song. The reason I love it so much is ninety percent because of Slash, because of the music. Sure. And when I too. when I listen to the lyrics, and I mean, you know, there's some good turns of phrase in there. I mean, Al, you know, Axel can write a good lyric, mm-hmm. but when you when you think about what it's about, which is that people got mad at him and hurt his feelings because he said the N word. <laughs> It's like, and, and he wrote, it's not even, I mean, he just, it goes on, man. There's like, just, it's like you said, there's a ton of lyrics in it. It's lyrically very dense. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like three pages worth of lyrics. It is. And so I'm listening to that now. And like, you know, you sing along to it because you know it. And like, you know, you're in the melody of it. But as I listen to the words, I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, man. I mean, like, I mean, he sounds like such a little bitch in that song because it's like, you know, first of all, going back to one in a million, you leaned into that, dude. You like just went face first right into that. You did it on purpose. You knew the reaction it was going to get and you did it anyway. And then you cry about it in this song about how like you're just poor, misunderstood, you know, songwriter. And it's like, come on. So that's a hard thing to reconcile is the song you love where the lyrics not only don't speak to you anymore, but actually irritate you. So it's like, wow. Don't dare me when I'm speaking a piece of mind Cause silence isn't golden when I'm holding it inside Cause I've been in where I've been and I've seen what I've seen I put the pen to the paper cause it's all a part of me And there's a few songs like that on there. <laughs> 
And it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, and, and there's a pervasive theme, especially in the in the, the first the first album, the Usual Illusion one, where it's it just sounds like Axel just venting and and and, uh, you know, complaining about grudges. I mean, the opening song is about a dispute he had with a neighbor. And then he's got a song, which is actually on Usual Illusion 2, where he's get upset the that... Yeah, get in the ring. Where he's <laughs> upset that, that magazines are saying mean things. It's like, it was just, I was honestly just thinking that like the genius of Usual Illusion is that the exact same critique that Chris gave so eloquently about Don't Damn Me. You could say the exact same thing about Get yeah. in the Ring, word for word. It's like, what? why are you being such a little bitch? What's wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, get, get in the ring. He's like, he, I mean, he's literally challenging like Bob Guccione Jr. to a fight, and it's like, why is this a, a song? It's like, what, what is wrong with that? <laughs> and they weigh in in that song. <laughs> yeah, they weigh in, and then when you do the math, those are some skinny dudes. Yeah, but, they, yeah um, they really are. There's like seven guys in the band. It's 850 pounds. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're each, they're each about 95. Yeah, no shit. It's like somebody needs to eat a sandwich, but uh, not not anymore. I think that's probably not anymore. Care well, well, yeah, yeah. I think well, age, we'll ages. Yeah. Save that for the reunion tour. We'll get yeah, to their sizes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when when Axel plays that song now, he changes the lyric to uh, weighing in at 850 pounds. Axel Rose. Axel Rose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the weight stays the same, but he just makes it him. But yeah, so so there's a lot of those songs on there, and I mean, and and where it's just like you listen to them and. I mean, he just sounds like an angry, petulant asshole. And, you know, and a lot of the songs, they deal with like romantic loss and issues with relationships. And every song, it seems like this woman is just torturing him and is a real bitch and a pain in the ass. And I mean, he literally has a song called Back Off Bitch. And I'm starting to think now that maybe it's him. Maybe it's not the women. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe the women he keeps saying about that are driving him crazy and doing all these horrible things to him and the relationships aren't working. I'm like, that might be because of you, Axel. You <laughs> might be the problem here. That's what I'm thinking. So as as I'm looking at these, and especially when you look at the songwriting credits, and again, the Appetite for Destruction uh, era, you know, that, that, that was a very collaborative effort. They all kind of came together from different bands with the stuff they were doing. You had all these different a- aesthetics. You had, you know, the, you know, the blues rock, you had the glam, you had the punk, and it all kind of melded into this really perfect thing, right? So now in these albums, it kind of starts to separate itself out a little bit. And you get Axel at his most bombastic and pretentious on certain tracks that are just, I mean, I think estranged is almost unlistenable. And even though I know it's got some great musicianship on there, but I think I, I, I don't know if you guys have seen the video, if you remember it. But <laughs> it's, it's hard to forget it, that video. I mean, it ends with him like hanging out with some dolphins. And I, I don't know what is going on. And it's just, that was, you know, I remember at that point. After where he jumps like, off the aircraft, Gary. Yes. I don't know. And his high tops and I don't know what's going on. But then you have, and, and I think you what really, and it's a shame that this guy ended up like just kind of quitting music, but the songwriting ability of Izzy Stradling cannot be understated and his importance in what he crafted in terms of the Guns N' Roses sound. Because what I found interesting was there was this, you know, going back and listening to it, like doing a deep dive into the albums, like at this point in my life, obviously there's the songs I'm intimately familiar with that I listen to all the time, but then you listen to like some of the deeper cuts and the songs that really stood out to me in terms of, wow, this song is a cool song. It's interesting are the Izzy Stradlin songs. It's the Dust and Bones. It's the 14 Years. It's Pretty Tied Up, which Pretty Tied Up, I think, is just him. He has the sole songwriting credit on that. Um, also, uh, 
um, oh, what is the the song on on Illusion One that uh, has a long flamenco coda at the end that Slash does? Oh, um, oh, oh I just listened I, to it today. Um, yeah, no, it just jumped out of my head. I find a head and arm in the garbage can. Uh, oh, a double talking yeah. jive. Double talking jive. Yep. Yeah, that's also I think a a a, a, a Stradlin song. That sounds like pretty tied up. So those those riffs are very similar. It makes sense. Yeah. That they came from. Yeah. But I mean, those are the songs that really jumped out at me and doing yeah. like a like a, a deep dive listen to those in terms of like, well, these are interesting songs. And I'm talking like musically and lyrically, whereas some of the, you know, the more axle centric songs uh, just, uh, you know, the musicianship is always there. And, you know, I'm always trying to figure out like, you know, I listen to something like November Rain. I've always had issues with that song because it's the worst you know, it's the worst aspects of what Guns N' Roses under Axel would be, where it's just overproduced and it's just so much. And it's, you know, all this orchestration and all this, you know, it's just like, dude, what do you do? Just play a song. It's like, <laughs> there's just so much going on in that song. But the song, like, I like the song, but, you know, that's the musicianship. And it's like the solo that Slash brings to that. And it's like, there's more heart in that solo and more soul in that solo than anything that Axel sings. And, so it's this weird pairing where it's just like I, I almost can't stand him as the lead singer and the lyricist in some of these songs. But I like the songs because the musicianship, you know, primarily because of Slash is so amazing. So there's a, there's a real kind of almost love hate for me and that album. And that's well, we'll, and, well, yeah, saying, was, and that, that's in turn what makes it so interesting is yeah. is with is that there is that dichotomy in it. No, this is, well, let's, all right. I want to, obviously we're going to circle back to a lot of this stuff. Now the relationship pairings and things like that, you, you brought up a whole lot of information. Um, let's, uh, let's let some others chime in first and then we can kind of come back and kind of readdress this yeah, is the beginning I'll, of the end. So to I'll, speak. I'll, I'll be quiet for a while. Though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause there are other people on this podcast. So, yeah, um, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Omar, <laughs> Omar, I think you might be coming at these albums a little bit differently, maybe less antagonistic. Than we're uh, double album or one and two. How does that, what do you remember about it? Sure, sure. And, and real quick, just to piggyback off of one of Chris's excellent points. Um, I, I think that, you know, in retrospect, when I look at the Guns N' Roses eras, and, and Neil, you said that we would sort of slice and dice the yeah. eras and label them appropriately. I, I honestly think like those might exist. Those de- multiple demarcations might exist. But like, as far as I'm concerned, the only main demarcation that is meaningful is the Izzy Stradlin period and the after Izzy Stradlin period, mm, um, both in terms of the cogency of the songwriting and sort of, and this is maybe my own fanciful theories. I don't know that it's backed up by anything, but like, I think operating as like a sober check on Axel and his like worst inhibitions um, in the sort of like, like, you know, wham, bam slash style and the very operatic over ambitious Axl Rose style and like subsuming it under like a sort of workable, accessible format. And I think when you lose that, you lose a lot. And I would also say from a temperamental standpoint, like when you lose someone like Izzy Stradling, like the first, the first of them to be like, Oh, I've got to not do drugs. This is not actually a sustainable way to live. When you lose that, 
like I, I you lose a lot. You lose a lot in terms of the dynamics. And it, it, like in re- when you look at everything in retrospect, I don't think it's that it's it's hard to fathom that things went south in terms of the interpersonal dynamics pretty quickly after Izzy Stradlin left. I have a lot of nostalgia for him and a lot of respect for how he carried himself. Like it takes a lot not to want to be the big cheese in a band like that. I think yeah. in terms of pure raw talent, you could make an argument that he was in the Axel and Slash League, but you know, because of the nature of the of like the, the fact that he was the rhythm guitarist and like the kind of discipline approach he brought to songwriting, he did not he was never going to be the kind of magnet for attention that the other two were. And that was probably fine for him until the other bullshit uh, forced him to walk away. And I just don't think they were ever the same after that. But well, real let me, quick, let, go let back. me interject go on, real quick. On. I just I just want to point out, like, these are things that I think I want to I want to come back and I want to re- readdress like later on. But my, I'm more con- I'm kind of a little bit more curious just about your take of the albums. Like, let's sure, let's, sure, sure. let's let's discuss the albums first, because the interpersonal relationships and then, you know, post Izzy, pre Izzy kind of thing. I, I, we will discuss as we go. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's totally fair. Like, I would say that the albums themselves have to be informed by the context in which they were being released. Like, as I experienced them, like it was everything. Like, like this was for me. The, the songwriting felt like this was the moment where Axel took over. Again, to piggyback on what Chris was saying. So, everything with those albums is Axel Rose for better and for worse. Like the way Chris describes November Rain like as a song that he has like profound issues with because like, it's so like much, like it's a lot. (laughs) Like, I think that's true for good and bad. I think the good and bad has its fingerprints all over these albums. And I find these albums fascinating as cultural artifacts and at times brilliant and at times unlistenable. It's like, (laughs) it's a potpourri. It is the white album. It is this insane hodgepodge of stuff that like, should not hang together but when it works it absolutely hits it out of the park but I, you know and I, I just think there's good and bad i think it is where axel's like filter gets removed and so he's simultaneously like settling grudges and like imagining himself like on the level of singer songwriter like elton john aiming for something operatic and grand as opposed to like the sort of like blues based stuff that they had been doing up to that point, pure blues-based hard rock that they had been doing up to that point. Um, I think that songs like, it's funny that like you described Estranged like that, Chris, because I actually think Estranged is a brilliant song. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way you described it or that god-awful music video. It has everything. <laughs> it, it's like, it is the most asinine thing in the world. And yet it's still like at age 40, makes me very emotional thinking of the song. Um, so I, I just think when I think of the illusions, I, I think it's a mess, but it was probably one of the most, like one of the biggest albums to subvert expectations like ever, because if you think about it going into that, like they are pure visceral energy. They are dangerous. They are foul mouth. They are vulgar. Like they were scary. Like mm-hmm. literally anything could happen to them. And like, they were many things, but like you never thought of them as like, overly ambitious and multifaceted in their songwriting. And so to hear a song like Civil War, to hear the cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door, which I think is better than the original, and I do not say that lightly, to hear You Could Be Mine, to hear Yesterday's, to hear Is Strange, like 
it is this grab bag of every single like style you can think of like every single tempo you could think of like range of of, of lyrical quality and like and uh posture like ranging from confrontational i'm going to beat the shit out of you to what happened baby what happened like <laughs> and everything in between i think it is like a fascinating like cultural artifact and like it is that that makes it excellent because on its own terms in a vacuum it is wildly uneven it is just wildly uneven sure. but yeah. I, I i you know and i think the lazy critique of it is well you could have made one really great album but they, like, they wouldn't have been Guns N' Roses if they had done it. <laughs> That's pretty well put. impact on me like i don't even know anymore whether it's a great song but like as a symbol of like their cultural cachet and their cultural power sure. like you know you guys brought up nirvana and pearl jam and like the sort of hostile takeover that they had done over the the rock scene and how they had you know sort of exposed the poisons and the bon jovis as just like you know like like frauds working at like half speed and I, I think that November Rain, to, to think that in 1992, in like the fall of 1992, when, you know, when, when Smells Like Teen Spirit and 10 are still in heavy rotation and they're deconstructing like the heavy metal format, like to think that one of the most, if not the most popular song of that year was November Rain, like a, a power ballad, if you really strip everything away, it just shows like their cultural cachet and influence and power at that point. And I, I don't know that it's one of my favorite songs, but I think it's probably the most significant song of that year. I would even, I would even add to that. I would point out the fact that, you know, one of the most heavily rotated songs on MTV was a 10 minute song like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That blows me away. Ryan, Ryan. And, and the, the last thing I would say, oh, the last thing I would say real quick is no, it's just real quick is that like, it subverted the last and biggest way it subverted expectations was that like Axl Rose, while still dangerous and violent and racist and homophobic and misogynist, like it was the first time when you were just like, there is a range and a depth to this person. Like the <laughs> Use Your Illusion album showed that he had these grandiose ambitions to be something outside of like standard garden variety rock and roll asshole. I mean, he was that, but it showed that like. He was someone who like loved and bled and felt and dreamed and like all of that bullshit. 
um, like on steroids. It, like I can't imagine for someone who was like 20, 25 years old and had followed Appetite for Destruction and all the craziness that ensued in the next couple of years, like the, the fights at concerts and the rioting and the people like dying at the concert at Castle Donington or, or Wembley or whatever. And like the, the baiting he would do of other bands and like all the intra-band fights, like to see that Axel, that same Axel do November Rain and Estranged and Civil War, that's got to be a huge mindfuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ryan, you still here? Yeah, I can't really respond to anything that Omar or Chris said because I've been making a steak for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, they, yeah, to paraphrase, they both said that the uh, Use Your Illusion albums are a mess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I co sign, but I love that mess. Um, <laughs> and this is a bit like, yeah, when we started talking about Appetite for Destruction, I mentioned that I recognize it is a great album. It is an amazing debut album. I I respect its place in rock and roll history. And on an intellectual level, I know why Appetite for Destruction is a great album. And it is it is worth the price of admission for their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame entry. But on an emotional level and a nostalgic level, it's like the, the it's these two albums that I live with. I so I remember you getting them, and I must it, it was must have been in high school when I went back and I got my own copies of these albums, and I think through high school and a good chunk of college. So we're talking about late nineties into the early two thousands. These two albums were among my most consistently played music. Interesting. Um, I just, I like, I would go through phases and, and, you know, I would pick up different things. I would discover new music or I would go back to old stuff that I loved, but not a month or two would go by when I wouldn't go through this phase when I would start listening to this stuff. And it was, it was these albums, like this was Guns N' Roses to me. It was this stuff. And then I, I remembered how great Appetite for Destruction was, but I just, I didn't play it. I played this stuff for some reason. And I mean, Chris, actually, I, I was listening. Chris spoke to something when we first agreed that when we were all jumped in, I was like, yeah, let's do a Guns N' Roses show. We have lots to talk about. I got really excited. And then like the next day, I got really nervous about it because I realized I hadn't listened to this stuff for a while. And I wondered how well some of these songs would age because as all of you guys have been kind of pointing out within Axel's lyrics and within some of the, the posturing and attitudes of this there is a lot of misogyny baked into Guns N' Roses. There mm-hmm. is a lot of violence and a lot of sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, all these things. And we're living in a different time period. And I'm a different person now. And I'm just like, shit. Am I going to listen to Use Your Illusion 1 and 2? And is it going to be fucking ruined for me? Overall, it didn't happen. And I think part of it is my, my part of it might still be nostalgia goggles carried me through. Um, <laughs> but I certainly. I I don't love some of these songs, including You Could Be Mine. I don't love it as much as I used to. Um, and I remember, Neil, I think Terminator 2 was the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater. Really? I think you got me into that movie, theater. I think you I think you got me into that one. That's um, a pretty good maiden voyage for an R-rated I didn't know Terminator 2 was rated R. <laughs> oh, sure. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I don't know if it would be today, but yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to everything you say, is it is it a mess? It is. It is so so indulgent. But as a sixteen year old and seventeen year old, I mean, I knew 
that I couldn't be a guitar player or a musician or anything. But I, so I, I tended to gravitate more towards song lyrics and writing. And Axel's writing on these songs felt ambitious to, to say the least. I mean, he, he certainly seemed like he was trying to be an Elton John or a John Lennon. He was trying to put up, and, and as we pointed out at the beginning, he bought into his own shit. Yeah. Um, he really got into the hype, but it felt like he was trying to do epic poetry. He was trying to write allegories about his personal battles with drugs and demons and societal expectations and fame and failures. And yet, and I don't want this to come across as a knock, although it's hard not to, there was something a little bit juvenile about his approach to it. I, I will I will concede. So it, it felt like he was writing some really larger concept things, but not in a way that felt like it was impossible to recreate. Like I felt like I could write some of these songs if I really put my mind to it. And these were big, epic, bombastic songs. There are three songs on these two albums that are about 10 minutes long. And I love all three of those songs. I love uh, November Rain. I love Coma. I love Estranged and stuff like that. And the other part of the band's makeup that you guys didn't really talk about, and I think this is maybe one of the more defining things for me, is they went from officially a five-piece band to a six-piece band when they introduced Dizzy Reed becoming the regular keyboardist. And Axel on pianos and Dizzy, they're they're kind of co-workmanships on the pianos and the keyboards. At the core of a lot of my love for these songs is the piano sound and the way it changes. And and you're right. So I'm, I'm saying, like, to me, this is almost a different band from Appetite for Destruction because of the introduction of this new keyboardist, but also just the songwriting approach and that type. And yeah, now we are doing more stuff with pianos and we're doing more stuff with orchestras and string things and all of that stuff. So it is it is bigger and some of it does not hold together. Like you guys mentioned, it's really overindulgent. I agree, but I love that for reasons that might not make a technical or coherent sense um it's just this emotional response it's the sonic response that i like the sound of these these particular songs with these pianos i mean getting into the indulgences and and what are some of the things that chris you were describing with uh november rain that song has two guitar solos almost back to back slash has a guitar solo and then there's a bridge and then he plays another guitar solo. <laughs> yeah. He's got, he's got the pretty solo and the mean solo. <laughs> yeah. For when, when we talked, I, I knew I was going to be in the vast minority when we came to this. I, I, I knew that you guys were going to be front loading appetite for destruction. And that's fine. Cause I, again, from an intellectual standpoint, I recognize its greatness, but if I could only listen to, uh, one album, it would. Uh, God, it, it's it's tough to choose between these two. We can we can actually discuss because Chris brought up which album is better. I probably like more songs from Musician One more, but as a as a kid, I mean, I understood why Use Your Illusion Two sold better because I think I, I maybe listened to Use Your Illusion Two a little bit more because of maybe a sense of cohesion of the songs and. and and the quality, something about that, I just, I, I think maybe of a piece, that album, it's a little bit tighter and a little bit loose, where, whereas User Illusion 1 had just more songs that were just kind of bigger that I liked. 
Well, what um, are some of the songs? Like, name some of the songs for the, okay, for the yeah, listeners yeah, out the, there, for for people yeah. that are, are are jumping into this podcast and saying, like, yeah. "Oh my God, that's a ton of music." Mm-hmm. What what, are, what uh, were some of your favorites? For, for me, I, I will start right off the bat from with the first song, and I know this is blasphemous, and you guys will want to kick me off the the podcast, but I'm the one editing this, so shut up. Um, the first <laughs> one, right next door to hell. <laughs> I think right next door oh, to God, hell is, really? I, I think that is as, as good of a album opener as welcome to the jungle. And I don't, I don't care if it's him beefing with his neighbor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been Rand Paul talking about the guy who beat him up, but I don't care. I love the, I love the music. Oh I love the God. song right next door to hell. Um, I do love November rain. Yeah. All the, like that whole trilogy of videos with, with, um, estranged and don't cry. Uh, the song dead horse is probably mm-hmm. my favorite guns and roses song. Um, that's at the end. Really? Of the album. Yeah. I, love I, I like that song, but I'm surprised that's your favorite. That's, that seems like one of those songs that when most people think of these albums, I bet you a lot of people don't even know that song. Probably. I mean, I think it, I think it became a promotional single. Like it was a single. Oh, it was a single. No, I, really? I don't think I don't wow. think they released it Didn't as a single that. you could buy, but it was on the radio and they made a video of it. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's good. Um, good and it, good yeah, song. it opens up with like this acoustic thing, and then it, yeah. it follows into like this heavy rock section. But I thought like, I had it no was, idea it was, was still kind of catchy. God, I'm gonna have to go check it. I think it's just live footage. Is the video? They they, they really got all, all the meat off that bone for the. <laughs> 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 Um, and then the the last song, uh, Coma, on, on User yeah. Illusion 1, as another one of these big epics. So this is, again, this is another, like, 10-minute song. And it's all about Axel and, and Slash talking about their drug problems and their overdoses. It's got, like, voice vocal dubs of, like, girls bitching out Axel and talking about all these stuff. And then you've also got, like, medical, like, doctors and, and paramedics doing this whole, like, audio drama thing of, like, going over, like, <laughs> like they were, and this was before ER was, like, popularized some of these, like, you know, they're talking about, like, pulse ox is dropping AO2 or something. And they're like, wait, what? Like, how, how, did, why did they think to record this in the song? I don't know, but I still love it. Um, and then in like the second hour, I, I, for, for as goofy as it is, I do like getting the ring is just a combative kind of fighty song. <laughs> um, the, the song breakdown on use your illusion Two is great. That is yeah, a great it song. Is. It is good. Um, that is a good song. There's stuff you can strip away from these. Um, there's stuff that you can throw it like, yeah, it's, it, I wouldn't put it all onto one album, but I do think there is a lot of the stuff that is skippable and, and silly and indulgent, but just the 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 sounds that they got out of this and, and part of it is axel's writing and part of it is just like just showcasing i mean if you're gonna indulge and let these guys just kind of cut loose and go off the rails with their musical talents these are really talented guys to do that too and i'm just along for the ride it's remarkable and astonishing how much of the songwriting on user the user illusion albums presupposes like some deep, deep knowledge of like the the granular details of Axl Rose's life and his feuds. And like, because if you're not watching, if you're not watching Kurt Loder on MTV News talking about the latest brouhaha, and you just turn on Get in the Ring, like it's just like, dude, what are you talking about? I, are you mad at me? Like, what's happening? Kurt Loder is 137 years old. 
Um, no, so I, I actually, Ryan, believe it or not, I, I don't know if you got this from me or if this is something that we just both have in common. Um, here's the weird thing. My musical taste, and, and this is going to sound strange, so you guys kind of bear with me for a second. But when I invest in a certain artist or a group or something, I have a tendency to like dive into the deep end of the pool and want more and more and more. So like double albums, like there's a lot of people that have said like, uh, like smashing pumpkins, melancholy and the infinite sadness. There are people that are like, Oh, that would have been a great single album, but there's so much crap on that. Or there's people like at the same time, I think Tupac's all eyes on me. There's a lot of people that are like, Oh, you know, you could have cut half of that album off and it'd be the best rap album ever. This is one of those things where I can I can sit here and I remember like the nights that I absorbed back to back these two albums or back to back you know melancholy and the infinite sadness or back like these things and be and wanting more because I didn't mind somebody being overindulgent not being able to self edit and you know there's bad like there's a weird thing about me where I'm like oh my god I couldn't get enough. So I can take all these in. And I remember I love the deep dives into a double album or one and two as, as this, as it were, um, and listening to this stuff. However, I do think that what you guys kind of talked about was really interesting because I think this was the point and believe it, or, I, I, Chris mentioned it. I want to say it's through the music videos. And as Omar mentioned through music news, I started to kind of discover that Axl Rose was a problem. And, you know, we, Omar, to go back to your point about Van Halen, I think that there was a lot of symmetry here. There was like, I was, I kept gravitating towards the musicianship and, and to the song structure and towards this. And there was a lot of like, like my favorite part of the strange is the instrumental breakdown in the middle of the song. That's, that's my favorite part with the, with the guitar solo and stuff. Um, there was a lot of things about these albums that I started to kind of realize. And then I went back to, I remember, you know, MTV was still replaying that, you know, in my opening, I talked about the Ritz concert in 1988. And there's a story about how Appetite for Destruction wasn't selling very well at that point. And they did this show and they begged MTV to put it on the air to get an so that people could discover this band so they could get it to the masses. And Axl Rose wouldn't come out to play that show because he didn't have his bandana that he wanted to wear. So the manager of the band had to go out into the fucking crowd and get some girl's scarf and bring it and, and like bring it back and have Axl approve it. And you got to imagine, like I'm, I'm sitting here hearing the, I'm hearing about this as an adult. I didn't notice it as a kid, but I'm like, this is your television debut, your break to make or break your career because your album's not selling as well as they want it to. And you're seriously not going to go on stage because you don't have a fucking bandana. I'm like, okay, this guy's got problems. So then I'm starting to now, so to come full circle. So now we're back into the user illusion albums and I'm watching and I'm reading, you know, MTV's got all these stories about like every, you know, this is when Axl Rose would play a show and Oh, some guy took a picture of him. So he punched the guy out, dropped the microphone. And he said, fuck it, fuck security. I'm out of here. And he walks off the stage. All these stories, as Chris kind of talked about before, every one of these stories was Axel-induced. The band just wanted to play music. The mm -hmm. band just wanted to go. You know, there were riots because they had to – James Hetfield had an explosion at a Metallica concert that burned them alive. And Guns N' Roses was asked then because they were supposed to – it was a double, head, a double bill. So then the, man, the, the promoters were like, Guns N' Roses, can you go on stage? Hurry up because – and Axel's like, no, I'm not ready to play. 
And it's just like this kind of stuff. You start to realize there's a pattern here where this guy is just an asshole. Now, I started to then kind of like dissect. This is probably the first time in my life, like maybe I was starting, I was, this is the 90s now. So I'm starting to write music. I'm starting to write lyrics. I'm starting to write guitar parts. I'm starting to do this stuff. And I'm separating the two. And this, I think kind of, Maybe it was because the band was diverging into two separate directions. There was Axel as a lyricist and Slash as a, as a guitar player, which was different than their earlier days. But I kind of felt like this was the first time I started to now segregate songs I liked. And there were a lot of songs I liked that I just kind of tuned out Axel Rose. And I don't know if, you know, you guys might have felt the same way a little bit, maybe, you know, whatever. But I think that there was a lot of pretension chris you talked about actually chris i'm gonna i'm gonna piggyback my two favorite songs from these two albums you nailed it it's don't damn me and locomotive those are my songs those are my two favorites like without a doubt i have no doubt like no doubt about it but i've gotten to a point now where when i listen to don't damn me i tune out the lyrics it's just noise to me i focus i i just i just zone in on the guitar parts and that riff and the and then the solo kicks in and then it, it like it's it's great and i i arguably and i'm going to talk about this a little bit more at the end but unlike an eddie van halen kind of thing my personal experience as a musician i feel like slash has gotten better as the years have gone on whereas eddie van halen peaked right out of the back i think he was the best guitarist he ever was on van halen one slash has gotten better as a musician now a lot of that mm-hmm. may help by being sober <laughs> that could that could have a lot to do with it because he was a mess when i saw him in that 1988 show he was a mess. He's a good guitar player now. But anyway, so I, yeah, I think this was when, and this is going to lead us into our next topic of discussion, which is the separation of powers now. Um, because at this point, I think with these two albums, I love them. And even though they were a double album, there's a lot of crap, a lot of filler in there. At this time, I was like, oh my God, if there were B-sides, I would have bought them. I was like, oh, I was so into everything that they did. And I started to separate the part that I think this is more Slash's band than Axel's. Now, Axel actually overtook Slash in terms of power. The power struggles, as we'll talk about, Axel took over, and that's why there was no more band shortly after. But as we talk about, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but as we will talk about the Slash solo stuff, I then started to hear with Slash's solo releases, I'm like, oh, that was Slash's band. That was Guns N' Roses was Slash's band. That's how good they were, because those all should have been Guns N' Roses songs. Else want to jump in anything else you want to say well, about the issue well, here? Yeah, yeah, just real quick. You know, Chris described when when the albums first dropped, was this the period when like you were making the, the daily uh commute to school and listening to them? Like, because I, you know, it, my view on the legacy of the Use Your Illusion albums is, you know, Chris, I can envision you like now in your daily life. I don't know what kind of a commute you have, but it's LA, so I imagine you're in your car a bit. Um mm-hmm. and 
I I can easily imagine you. Remember, there's a pandemic going on right now, so Chris works at home. It's true. Okay, fair enough. Uh, in normal normal waking life, I can easily imagine. I can easily imagine Chris like driving and like listening, or any of us driving and like listening to Appetite for Destruction, and there not being any cognitive dissonance between that and like the other music we would choose to listen to. I have a hard and and I again, I think those albums are terrific and and defining. But I have a hard time believing Chris or any of us would casually. Be like, hey, let's listen to you. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I sounded pretty critical of the albums. And I mean, that's probably more, you know, how I'm approaching it at this point in my life from this current perspective. I mean, I have love for the albums and I always will. And, you know, like Ryan said, like like Neil said, you know, you, you take the good with the bad and they're and they're kind of a bloated mess and there's a lot of filler. But. I, I love it. I'd have them any other way. I no, mean, no, no. I think that's true. I, I'm just saying, I think that the difference is, I think they are more a product of their time than after yeah. destruction. I, I th- well, I think that's, hmm, that's an interesting point. I, I'm not sure I agree with it. Um, only because, you know, the music is, is a lot more, uh, it's a lot more genres and, and it's a lot more far reaching. I think it's a lot more expansive. Then, uh, you know, what Appetite was, Appetite, you know, Appetite's one of those, I think, kind of magical albums that's of its time and, and also timeless, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. sure. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting point, Omar. I'm just not sure I agree with it, because I do think mm-hmm. a lot of, especially when I, when I started listening to it again now and rediscovering some of those songs I mentioned, you know, like Dustin Bones, like 14 Years, that were, I think what struck me about them was, like, oh, wow, these still work, and maybe they even work better now. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since I sat down and, and just listened to those albums as albums, that's for sure. I didn't actually really even do it for this podcast. I just listened to them as part of a part of a mix. Well, here, Chris, um, I got a question for you. How about, yeah, they, yeah. like, this is, this is really interesting. I guess I'll pose this to the group. If you were to put together a 20-song playlist by Guns mm-hmm. N' Roses, mm-hmm. would you be able to get an equal amount of songs out of use your illusions as appetite. Um, well, I mean, for starters, I mean, there's two albums versus one, so it's almost not fair. Um, well, it, no, my point is it should be easier to get that many out of, you should be able to get more out of use your illusions than appetite, but I'm uh, yeah. trying to, I'm trying to, you know, hmm. I'm trying to see if you actually would put that many songs on the same par. I think on the same par. See, yeah, that, that's tough because again, the music on, Appetite is so singular. I think there are songs from the Usual Illusion albums that, like, you, you hear and you go, yeah, that could that would work with Appetite. Like, you know, You Could Be Mine, which is actually was a song of that era. And songs like, you know, like Don't Damn Me or just, you know, the straight-ahead rock songs. But then, you know, they get a little bit more experimental with other stuff, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually surprised to find out I'm the only one who hates Estranged. Okay, I, I guess maybe I need to give this song another listen. But... <laughs> And, yeah, and, well, and, I, I already mentioned this. My favorite part is like the five minute to six and a half minute part. <laughs> right. And, you know, and again, like so many songs on these albums, apparently Axel is very sad. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's hard being Axel. But so there's so much tied into these songs about who Axel was at the time, who he is now, what became of the band that you then read into these songs. And it's hard to like, like, you know, how, so for me, it's like also, also more of the strip, it's either the stripped down songs that are just straight ahead rockers or the songs that had little or no actual involvement than the ones that really work for me now. 
Like the ones that are completely axle are the most indulgent ones. I'm just like, Ugh. I mean, breakdown actually, I do really like, and that probably does veer under the into the indulgent, you know, because you can get that's the thing is you can get away with indulgence if you're talented enough. I always felt that Axel's indulgence exceeded his talent to be indulgent, and yeah. So to answer your question, Neil, I mean, I think I could. Um, because I, there are songs, I mean, whereas I love every song on appetite, I love a lot of songs on the usual illusions, but I also like a lot of songs on the usual illusions. Sure. So, yeah, and those will make the cut, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Omar Ryan, you guys want to throw anything I, in? I would, I think I could do it to meet the criteria of your challenge, but if it was up to me, I would make my best of staggeringly disproportionate to appetite for destruction, just because I, I just think there's a generally lower batting average on the user illusions. Um, and I think that, you know, the truth is, I think the high points of appetite are better than the high points of user of the user illusions. And I think the other stuff on appetite is great. Whereas on user illusions, you have some great stuff, uh, some good stuff and a whole lot of bad stuff. Um, well, that's so actually, again, I, uh, no, it's actually interesting that you put that. I think that this is perfectly segues into Ryan's answer to this question because Ryan seems to wholeheartedly kind of like use your illusions more. So Ryan, where would you say that, like, where would you rent? What would your high point of user illusion be compared to the high point of appetite? Again, like I almost like when, when you asked the question, I would, I would try to avoid mixing them because I kind of see them as so as two as almost two different bands. Okay, like That's fair. to me, there there is that much of a distinction. That's fair. Um, I, I, I don't it, mind that. Yeah, if I did, uh, no. I mean, I I would have more songs from Use Your Illusion. Again, those are just the those are the albums that I listen to more. Those are the ones that speak to me more. And, and again, I've been I've been trying to reconcile with this because. So much of this, of my my connection to this, is based on accepting Axl Rose's pretensions and and his 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 <laughs> illusions. Uh, and and the thing is, as we've made perfectly clear, like I don't want to like Axl Rose. Like he sounds like a fucking asshole from everything that I've heard about him, and like he's just a terrible person whose lyrical and musical instincts sort of like a lot of times tended to speak to like the audience he was cultivating are people I wouldn't want to associate with at all in my daily life. Like Again, like I really, like I was like, yeah, let's do a Guns N' Roses episode. And then I was like, shit, am I going to regret this? Like, do I want to talk about this? That's like, funny. Do I you know want to be associated you, with this man? And No, what's funny about the way you mentioned that is I would almost say the opposite. I think we have the same meaning, but I would say like, I want to like Axl Rose. And I just don't. <laughs> yeah, like, like so. So I the analogy I always make, and I've reflected on a lot more in the last day or two in prepping for this, is that like I consider Axl Rose like to me, Axl Rose is to musicians as Mike Tyson is to athletes. Like <laughs> I, I think that there is bad. a that's not bad. Yeah, like like I I think that in a vacuum, if you're just talking about like pound for pound raw skills combined with the sort of like dazzling headline grabbing legacy making impact that is made from a very short burst of time uh and the work that's done in a very short burst of time it's like man undisputed champion like bottle this feeling up like if you were able to like rip off like a 10 or 15 year run like this you would be the greatest ever 
But instead, because of other hand, I'm hand waving away stuff, like it gets compressed into this like five year run, like three to five year run where it's like you were the most viscerally exciting, raw, most raw, nat- rawly, naturally talented individual that changed the landscape and changed the game. But because of your demons and associated hand waving bullshit, like you, I'm going to be left thinking so much more about what you could have been. Yeah, and now you're just biting somebody's ear off. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's actually that's it. I, I kind of like that Tyson analogy. That's actually that's pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. I'm Personally, this is going to sound strange, but those of you that know me know that I'm a little, this is the way my mind thinks. Um, I think Axl Rose's descent into weirdom started with his costume designs for stages like for the for the shows like when he's when he got away from wearing leather and bandanas and and like jackets and cut off shirts. And then started wearing biker shorts and kilts and combat boots and I, like everything about him. Just like I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You don't look like a rock band anymore. Yeah, I don't know what mm-hmm. you're trying to do. So yeah, the, but again, we'll come back to Axl Rose. We'll come back to that story shortly. Quickly, anybody want to drop anything about the spaghetti incident? No, <laughs> I, I, don't, I never. I, didn't, I don't remember. I don't remember anticipating an album. I will just say I don't remember anticipating an album more as as a youth than that. And all really? I can talk about and reflect on is the anticipation. And mm. you know, in terms of the substance, the the less said, the better. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, I bought the Spaghetti Incident used from Hemispheres by, which is a a used store by Campus Cinema. I mm. bought it for ten dollars. I played it once, and then I sold it back for a net loss of eight dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and one, one thing that should be said, awesome. one thing that should be said about that album in terms of you know what Axel would do in terms of stirring up drama and being provocative and and kind of bringing all that shit on himself is the hidden track on that album was written by Charles Manson. Manson, yeah. yeah. And at the end of the song, oh, Axel in one of his famous Axel sendoff says, "Thanks, Charlie." And it's just like, dude. And then I'm I'm, I'm listening to that, thinking we're going to get a 10 minute song about how upset Axel was that people are mad at him for this. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know why it was a hidden track was because the record label didn't approve it. They were like, they were like, there's no way we're going to allow a, li- a like like a financial credit to to Charles Manson because he yeah. would have gotten a songwriting credit. So like all so yeah. That, that I, can I just say I, I think in terms of the album itself, I would just put in I would just testify to the goodness of three tracks in particular. I think the Ain't It Fun track is good. I think the Since I Don't Have You um, to kick things off is good. And I think the Johnny Thunders song, You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory, is very well done. Okay. Uh, I actually like Hair of the Dog on there. So 
Chris, I remember we lived together when you had this album too. And I remember you, we were both kind of like, uh, well, we should like it because it's Guns N' Roses, but mm, yeah, not so much. Yeah, exactly. All right. So by the time of the spaghetti incident, the band was in total disarray. Axel apparently told Gilby Clark, the touring guitar player during the Use Your Illusion tour that replaced Izzy, he told him before the last show of the Use Your Illusion tour to enjoy your final gig. And this was something that none of the other band members knew about. And Gilby wasn't invited to record on the Spaghetti Incident or the Sympathy for the Devil song for Interview the Vampire, the, the remake they did. Axel went even farther by demanding that the other band members sign over ownership rights to the name Guns N' Roses or he would no longer perform live. And he held them hostage before an actual concert one night. So reluctantly, the band members did. And in 1996, Axel then told Slash and Duff to take a significant pay cut or he disbanded the group and hire new musicians under the umbrella of Guns N' Roses since he now owned the name outright. Slash quit on the spot and Duff did shortly thereafter. So that brings us to the next era of the band, the Chinese democracy era. Who wants to start first? Any thoughts on the most expensive album in history in the 12-year recording process that is Chinese democracy? Chris, (laughs) I feel like I got to go to you. So this was the album I was most curious to revisit, only because by the time it came out, I mean, I wasn't, excited for it anymore i was just kind of like okay i mean it was just it was 10 years past the point of being excited about it and not to mention the fact that you know it's not i don't care what legal rights he has to the name and what he calls whatever band he's with it's it's not guns and roses it's it's an actual solo project yeah so you know i was fairly dismissive of it when it came out there's you know uh, there were some songs on there i liked and but i mean there's nothing on there that to me was guns and roses and i just kind of you know forgot about it so I, you know, I went back to it and I actually listened to it as an album. And I will say that I am more forgiving of it now. Um, that's not to say I think it's a good album. I also don't think it's a bad album. I just think it's a fine album. It's got some you know decent material on there. There's some songs on there I genuinely like. There's nothing on there that compares with the best stuff from either Appetite or the Usual Illusions albums. I mean, I, you know, in fairness, it's probably not even anything on there that's as good as the best song off of the spaghetti incident, which is very well. <laughs> but you know, there's some tracks on there. I like, I like the title track. I like better. I like Shackling's revenge. And actually, you know, it opens up pretty strongly. And then, you know, the back half of the album just gets into this Axel Rose indulgence. And, you know, like I was saying, you know, about the usual illusion albums, the thing that strikes me is, you know, you have a lot of talented artists that make, you know, that, that make indulgent albums and, you know, a lot of times it can be forgiven because their talent kind of forgives it. Yeah. I just don't think that Axl Rose is talented enough to be as indulgent as he is. And when he tries, it just feels like he's overreaching. And, you know, I listen to these songs that are, you know, these kind of complex structures and he adds all these little flourishes. And I'm just like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't, you know, it, it's like, I'm not sure what any of it's supposed to mean. As a matter of fact, I was re- when I was reading about it, there was the, the music critic, the music journalist, um, uh, Robert Christgau said about this album that it succeeds on Axel's Axel Rose's, uh, irrelevant terms. And I think that's, exa- <laughs> that's perfect. That's exactly what it does. <laughs> I think the album is a success in terms of this is what Axel wanted to do. The question is, why did he want to do this? Yeah. And the bigger question is why did it take this long and why did it cost that much? And 
And why did Buckethead have to have a chicken coop built into the studio so he could raise chickens while they were recording his guitar solos? Yeah. And, you know, why have a guy named Buckethead on your band to begin with? I mean, (laughs) because they could, Chris, because they (laughs) they, could. They they could. (laughs) You know what? Fair enough. Another interesting thing about this album is, you know, when I was reading reading about it, is uh, in the years after its release, all of the original members of Guns N' Roses have voiced their opinions. And everyone has something oh, I haven't complimentary. Heard this. Yeah, everyone has something complimentary to say about it, except for Steven Adler, who <laughs> once again puts me in a position of agreeing with Steven Adler. Because I'm like, you know what? Steven Adler is the voice of reason here, ladies and gentlemen. The guy who had the cocaine, the guy who had the cocaine-induced seizure is the voice of reason. But had this album come out in its exact form in like 1998 as an Axl Rose solo album, I probably have been a lot more forgiving of it initially and would ex- have accepted it because that's very much what it is. It's all the, you know, his, it, it's all the worst, you know, aspects of Axl Rose as a musician, as a songwriter and the best. I mean, there, there's some actually good stuff on this album in terms of his songwriting and musicianship. It's just that the music in general, the overall feel of it, it just doesn't, it's just not Guns N' Roses. And the last thing I'll say about it is in terms of how much it cost and how long it took, I think that if someone came to me and said, you know, you have 15 years and $13 million to make an album that has to be at least as good as Chinese democracy, I think despite the fact that I have no <laughs> musical ability, I can achieve that goal. <laughs> I think I could. I think I could figure that out. I'm like, you know, I, I go to music school. I, I take some intensive songwriting courses, and, and I really, I spend five years really putting. You know, so it just makes you wonder what the fuck was Axel doing this whole time. So, oh my god, that's so well put. Yeah. So, and, and you know, and, and the thing is, it's been 13 years since that album came out, and at the time we were told. Oh, Axel has all this other music, and you know the floodgates are open now. We're going to start seeing all these other. And it didn't happen, as I've been saying. I think there's there, there's a there's a certain emperor has no clothes aspect with Axel Rose. I think he is talented. I don't think he's as talented as he thinks he is, or at least as he presents himself to be, or as he tries to be. And I think Axel realizes that too. Otherwise, I feel like we would have seen some of this music. I feel like it wouldn't have taken this long to release one album. I think he is riddled with you know self-doubt about his own talent and that's why he's now fallen back on just you know basically doing a Vegas review of his glory days with the original band members Listen to Chinese Democracy for the first time in preparation for this episode. Really? Okay. Yep. I was Good waiting for, you. for it. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was waiting for it for a long time. Um, yeah, it was actually just because when we did the Van Halen show, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I feel kind of left out that I didn't listen to that last Van Halen album. Um, again, it was it was one of those things. It, t- it took so long for the. By the time the album was getting released, I didn't care. I wasn't listening to Guns N' Roses anymore. Like I, I, I had nostalgia for the old stuff, but I had also been burned by 
bands or movies or franchises, you know, coming back for like reunion specials or, or prequels and stuff like that. I was like, eh, I don't, I don't want to see this anymore. I don't want to. And it also, it just, like you said, it, it's Axl Rose project, but it's got not, it's Guns N' Roses in name only. If it doesn't have the rest of the band or at least, you know, three quarters of the band, you know, I, I wasn't interested in it, but I listened to it. I gave it a fresh listen and I would say it was better than I expected. Um, not great. Only a couple of songs kind of, you know, the song you mentioned better. I like that one. Um, but there wasn't really a whole lot of else there. I can't imagine I will listen to it again. Cause I just, I don't have, I don't have a Guns N' Roses play. If I had a Guns N' Roses like mixed playlist or something, I might throw a few songs on there, but I don't anymore. I, I just listen to the whole albums now. Mm. Um, so without that, I probably won't ever listen to it again, but I could say, it was as 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 just an album, whether you call it Axl Rose or Guns N' Roses, better than I thought, but not great. Because you didn't buy it at midnight the night it came out. <laughs> <laughs> I did not invest that much into it. No, Omar, what do you think? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Neil. Like when invariably, and I'm the biggest, you know, uh, culprit here. When we start talking about particular albums, you know, we end up sort of interspersing soapy details about the band or talking about like where the band was chronologically or what stupid shit Axl Rose was doing at that point. And like, you know, multiple times you've tried to like separate that out and get us on track, like laudably. And I understand why, but like the problem is like, you can't talk about these albums in a vacuum because like more than any other band, like they are so much a product of the other bullshit. Like, well, this is, this, this is, this, this album, I will absolutely agree with you have, you have carte blanche now to go off on this one. This this album is not a Guns N' Roses album. Like Chris talked about, Chris danced around a couple of times, like the, how much it costs, but like, and, and, and that's right. But like, I think to put a fine, to put a point on it, like it's the most expensive record ever made, Mm -hmm. like by far, it's Mm -hmm. not even close. And like, it is also like one of the most anticipated albums to a point ever made, but I think around maybe 2000 or 2001, people just checked out because like they figured it wasn't going to happen. Like I think Ryan's analogy of he had been burned by other reunion projects in the past or sequels or whatever. I think it's apt because I was actually thinking about an exp- when I first heard the record, I, I remember thinking immediately to an experience I had with Ryan six months prior in that year where we saw the fourth Indiana Jones movie. And I remember walking out <laughs> was, of it with him. I was thinking the same thing in my head. Yeah. Oh, I remember man. walking out with him. Like the, the joint opinion we had was like, that took 19 years. Like <laughs> there was so much, there was so much. Cause remember there was so much speculation in the press and like, this one's going to write this script and then this guy's going to do it. And Steven Spielberg's going to direct and he's not going to direct. We're going to hire this person X, Y, and Z. So it was with Chinese democracy, except on steroids. And then when you factor in, not just the fact that he was alienating and pushing everyone out, but also in a time period between 94 and 08, like he had become this increasingly, it wasn't just that he was self-indulgent or that he wasn't talented enough to like pull off the, the heist, the creative heist. Yes, all of that is true, but he also genuinely became or grew into fully his, his reality as an eccentric weirdo. Yeah, he became Howard Hughes. Yeah, Howard Hughes. Like he absolutely became Howard Hughes. I mean, where, I don't know if like, I don't know if you guys. Sorry to cut you off really quick, but I don't no, know if you guys realize this. Like he lives right now in his house with his housekeeper, his Hispanic housekeeper, and her entire family, and he credits them as often on stage as he does band members. 
Like it's yeah. it's it's freaking weird. So all right, like, go on. And so you know, no, I think that's very apt because like you know, in the intervening years, like you get bits and pieces, you get breadcrumbs of like what was going on. And Axel has this great like volume of songs and he's in the studio, he's with this and that. And like, you know, for the first few years, I was excited because part moments in the, like, like there were some individuals in that new lineup where I was just like, Oh, this could be something like, especially they got Tommy Stinson from the replacements. Like Mm -hmm. that's a big get. I mean, I understand you're, you're, you're using him to, to prop, prop up the absence of, you know, to cover for the absence of these, these, these Titans and Slash and Duff. But like, it was, I was still, when I first heard of that hire, I was like, hey, this could really go somewhere. But I think that much like with the Indiana Jones movie, it was just like, this was 14 years in the making. This took 14 <laughs> years. All the anticipation, all the breadcrumbs, all the clues that were left, all like mm-hmm. the, the, the stories of the fans, like breaking their necks to try and get like the next biggest scoop. Like, you know, Chris, you talk about how it might have been a, just as good a use of money, if not better, by you recording and writing the songs yourself. I think that's true. But like, I don't think this is a good record. And I think that the money would have been better used if you would just like lit it on fire. Like, I think it's actually bad. Like, I think better is a good song, but it is a good song precisely because like the hooks lean on the hooks and the songwriting and the lyrics lean on nostalgia, even like the way his voice goes leans on nostalgia. But I think like the bloated self-indulgent nature of the record is like, it's unlistenable. Like I listened to it twice. I have not revisited it. I'm not going to listen to it again. Um, it's, it's, it's a crushing, huge disappointment. Um, I, I think it's scattershot. I think the lyrics are kind of embarrassing. Um, I think the production like sounds very muddled. I think he's trying to incorporate like new 2000s era to, uh, production quality. Yeah. And like fashion it onto his type of songwriting as if he was just like, Hey, here's one more thing I can do. But again, he doesn't, he didn't have any filter that the new band members that he had most likely were in reverence of him and they weren't acting as strong checks on him to be like, Hey, this is a little bit much fella. Don't do this. Like, these are session musicians. This is essentially session musicians who are not going to stand up to him. And you're right. He's not talented enough to pull it off. I think it's one of the worst major label albums I heard that entire year. I actually think it's kind of embarrassing. Hmm. You know, you know, it's funny. This I, I didn't have this in any of my notes, but hearing Omar, you and, and, and Chris talk, I feel, I can't help but feel like, cause I'd heard at one point, like Axel said he had 50 songs or something that, you know, before this. And he was like, it's just, you know, I'm going to put them all out and you guys are going to be blown away. And all I can think about as you guys were talking is I'm like, this is Giuliani now. I mean, it's like, yeah. like, like, I'm like, I'm like, he's like going, Oh, just you wait, there's proof. Just you wait. You know, it's like, and where is it, dude? Like where where yeah. are these songs? Where is this material? Um, can I just can I just step in right really quick and say, if I was Bono's housekeeper, I would really like it. Maybe if he gave me a shout out during one of the concerts. Axel Axel Rose pulled this chick up on stage and had her introduce her to like because I I think she's from Argentina and the Guns N' Roses of this era, the Chinese Democracy lineup, did a show in Argentina. So he brought his housekeeper out on stage. And thanked her to the crowd, and they were like, "Okay, <laughs> like, all right." Yeah, I don't all think right. that's where I wish Jay Z and Beyonce would do that more often. 
Like, like we mock him. Like we mock him, like justifiably so. But like I want to make it clear, we can get into this later. Like I'm fairly certain Axel Rose has like some element of like mental illness. Yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, no doubt. Absolutely, yeah. no absolutely. doubt. <clears throat> all right. So the only thing I like, if I, <laughs> I, I'm pretty much, I think we're all kind of on par with these albums. The only thing I will say about the album is I've actually slowly kind of grown to appreciate just a handful of songs. Cause I, I was more like, I didn't like it when it first came out. Didn't like it at all. And I didn't know if that was just because my reaction was like, I didn't want to like it because it was like, finally, now you spit this out and this is what you had. And it was just, it, I wanted it to be epic and it wasn't um so i don't know if that was the case but um there's a a handful of songs i've only started to like because they are now played in the live performances of the reunion tour and we'll get to that shortly so i'm not going to get ahead of ourselves but like chris you know I, i mentioned this before you and i saw this tour in la when they had like three different guitarists in in the band at a point maybe three or four or something and we saw and it was just like a weird tribute band and everybody got a solo and we were like and this is a night that like the band, show was supposed to start at, at nine and axel showed up at 12 and it was one, one so you start the show off pissed off because right. they'd already they like we were already cut off from the bar and, and like and they were like oh, you know i mean seriously three hours late we're like axel you're still doing this shit now when you're you not imagine him acting like that in 2008 like well that's what i'm saying it's like it's like this you're not in like this isn't the guns and roses that we thought we were you know from 20 years ago so i remember chris and i you and i were furious we're like what the fuck and so anyway but you know that that's neither here nor there um a couple of the songs though i i do like i, th- I think uh better we all agree better is a pretty good song um yeah, yeah. i actually i actually like only from the live performances of with with slash and duff back in the mix now madagascar and this mm-hmm. i love i actually think that those are pretty good songs i like those this i love i like because of the guitar soul so that's it is what it is um I do like the fact that, you know, in the, Chris, the original lineup that, or the, not the original, the, the Chinese democracy lineup, we saw one of the guitar players, one of the many, many guitar players on stage, Richard Fortas did stay along with the group. Richard Fortas, I feel like fills the Izzy Stradlin role really well in the band now. Um, and he's still a part, he's still a part of the group. So I do like the fact that he's still in it. Um, but all those songs, those three songs that I mentioned or whatever, I think that they're all just greatly improved upon during the reunion tour because of the classic lineup now playing them. Right. Um, and there's that, you know, so there's something about that. Uh, the album itself leaves no impact on me whatsoever. None at all. move on so during the 12 years or so it took chinese democracy to come out slash was quite quite prolific releasing his first solo album under the moniker slash a snake pit and it was made up and this is i can't wait to get into the stuff with you chris specifically because you're familiar with it um this was made up of material that he had written for the next gnr record back in 96 and axel shot it all down 
So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we, we can decide that. But then he, so, so Slash the Snake Pit released an album. Then uh, Slash Duff, Matt Sorum founded uh, Velvet Revolver with Dave Krishner and as Stone Temple Pilots frontman Scott Weiland. We can talk about that. They released two albums till Wyland opted to go back to STP and then die. Um, and then finally, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, there was no other way to put that. I, I, there's, there's no more oh, profound I, way to. I thought I like, they oh, threw him out because of his drug addiction. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't with STP when he died. Yeah, he, he did uh, another. No, problem. no, I thought Velvet. Revol- I thought Velvet revolved. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of his drug addiction. No, no, they 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 claim that they they claim that they never officially broke up. They had problems with Wyland. They kept trying to get him back into rehab. Duff kept dragging him, kicking and screaming to all these weird heat retreats, and he would put him in a tent with like some yoga master for like three days. You know, he did everything to try and detox him, but they never officially called off the band until Wyland told them he was going back to STP and then left him without. Technically, if you if you actually Google this, technically Velvet Revolver never broke up. Exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say. Yeah, I haven't checked recently, but yeah, I remember for years because like Lenny Kravitz was going to join the band. Yeah, and- yeah, the band never broke up. So, yeah. So finally, so then after the STP era, or uh, the Velvet Revolver area slash then released three more solo albums with Miles Kennedy from you guys might know from Alter Bridge. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. And they did uh, three more albums that were basically like slash solo albums. So I'm bringing this up to you guys. Now, I've heard all of Slash's stuff. I know, Chris, you have too, and I've actually mm-hmm. seen him. I've actually seen Slash's solo work three times. Chris, I know that you've seen at least one. Yes, um, I have. Okay. So, and those songs are fantastic. I love them, but I want to, I'll, I'll, I'll go last. How about you guys? Have, have Has anybody else ever heard of Slash's solo stuff, or do you want to talk about Velvet Revolver? Um, well, like, so I can only say I knew the stuff was good by reputation. Uh, By the time he started becoming more prolific, I had sort of lost interest in like all GNR related stuff. But like what struck me was, A, like the stuff was very like critically acclaimed and the people that I knew that I respected really liked it. And But just as importantly, B, Slash was able to be seen in his own light as like a very decent, normal person. (laughs) Um, like like you know what i mean like like because like the point you made earlier neil like a lot of the like the the reputation got like the rest of the band got saddled with when axel was responsible for the majority of it but you know that was the intervening years like i would say like the 96 to 2015 period i was just like okay he's like he's proving himself like he's showing that like he was like the dynamite creative force behind gnr and also He's not an asshole. Like he's a genuinely thoughtful, like he, really, he really is, highly intelligent, sensitive, good guy. He is. He is. I, I, I even want to go farther with that. Like I followed because I followed him on Instagram for years and I followed him on Twitter and stuff like that. He's by far the most normal of anybody in the band I've ever heard. Like slash you, like you could sit down and have a conversation with him about, about movies or about comic books or something like mm-hmm. he's the most normal guy in the band. Yeah, and, like, if you think about his background, like, growing up, like, interracial and, like, in that time period and, like, yeah. witnessing all the crazy shit in the band that he did, like, like having an unnecessary feud with, like, with someone that he could have gone down in history with is, like, Lennon, McCartney, Rogers and Hammerstein, Jagger and Richards. Like, he, that dude has perspective. Like, I, I just find him, like, to be a very engaging very normal, very cool guy who I am glad made it out the other side of all of this. 
Yeah, cool. Ryan, um, have, are you familiar with any of Slash's solo stuff? Uh, a little bit now. And um, God, it was actually, it was about a year ago. Um, I did a, uh, a Stone Tumble Pilots episode with Delvin Williams, and we talked a little bit about Velvet Revolver. So I went back and listened to that stuff about a year ago. And and I do remember getting really excited before that came out, because you told me about that one, yeah. uh, kind of yeah. getting hyped for it. Um, and just the idea, because that was when like the idea of a super group, a super band was really right. kind of taken off. And getting well, do you remember, Ryan, do you remember I had a friend that actually auditioned for the band? Yeah. Do you remember yeah, the, you talking, you remember the yeah. story? My my friend Pat, Chris, you probably remember this. My I do remember Pat, this. Yeah, my friend Pat, and he invited me to the Viper Room to see a show where Slash played with them in oh, person. Nice. I, I was I was five feet away from Slash, and I have pictures to prove it. But he invited me. He was like, he sent me like, you know, he told me the whole story about he was auditioning for Velvet Revolver, and they were looking for a singer. VH1 did a like. Uh, I think a documentary, like one hour documentary about their search for a singer and all the demo tapes that they had. But my friend Pat then got invited. He was playing a show at the Viper Room and he like texted me that day. He's like, dude, you got to come down and see us play. And I remember thinking, Chris, I don't know if we lived together and you might have been working or something. But I think I remember being like, I've seen you play a bunch of times. I'm not going to go into Hollywood tonight, you know, whatever. And he was like, no, you need to come tonight. Trust me. Right. And so I was like, okay. And I went down there and, you know, it was at the Viper Room, maybe 100 people total, you know, on stage. He's playing basically his set, his solo stuff. And then the final three encore songs were Guns N' Roses songs and Slash joined him on stage. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And then he didn't get the gig. But that was, uh, yeah. So, Ryan, go back. (laughs) I'm sorry. Go back to your story. I, I just remember being really excited and just loving the album when I first heard it, the Contraband, the first uh, Velvet yeah. Revolver one. And and I, I had been a fan of Stone Temple Pilots, so I liked Scott Weiland. I liked his voice. Um, and just right off the bat, a lot of those songs, Sucker Train Blues, and then the, the, the singles with Slither and Fall to Pieces. Um, but Sucker I Train. also remember as, as much as as much as I was a fan of that and really enjoying that album, at the time, I remember thinking, I was like, God, what if this was a Guns N' Roses album? Yes, I was like, I, I, I was like, uh, Scott Weiland is doing great, but and and now looking back, I think you know we, you know, Kickstarter and GoFundMe didn't exist at that time, but <laughs> like if we could have just retroactively just if the fans just got together and just paid Axel, it's like the songs are written, recorded, <laughs> just record a vocal track. You don't just take the same lyrics, just record your vocals over these same songs. You'd never have to be in the room with Slash and Duff and the other guys. If you still hate them, if you're still beefing, whatever it is, don't have to be in the room. Just record a vocal track and they can add it later. You don't have to tour to support it. I'll just have the album. But if I could have had <laughs> Axel singing those songs on that album, that would have been that would have been the comeback. That that's what Chinese democracy should have been. It was contraband. I never really got into slash. I didn't, I didn't follow his other stuff because musical taste changed. I went and, and I kind of, I wasn't going to say like, I liked Axel more, but as I kind of alluded to, I followed the the singer and the songwriter more than, than the musicians. So it was just, I don't know. I just, I just it, it didn't really capture my interest as much um, until I found out that he was uh, Robert Evans's neighbor on that cartoon. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh yeah, the kids. What was that? The, the kid stays in the picture, or that—that that was the no, uh, kid the A. Movie. Kid, uh, yeah. the movie was "Kid Stays in the Picture." The cartoon was what the hell was it? I don't know, but I remember that kid notorious. Was, kid notorious. Kid notorious. Yeah. yeah, and it had Slash and a cat. Yeah, that's all I remember. Um, you know, again, in preparation for this, you gave me a bunch of their songs, and, and I listened to some of his stuff. The one song with the uh, the guy from Maroon Five. Oh, uh, gotten by yeah. Adam Levine. Yeah, yeah, I really like that song. I like that one a lot. about his voice lending itself to that kind of bluesy song um i, I really kind of dig um the songs with when he's got when he's playing with fergie those remind me of hailstorm songs those those could just be <laughs> hailstorm sure yeah very much um, yeah actually very much so um, but, cool. but yeah that's kind of i mean i never would have thought about it but just like getting into slash on his own terms as just a blues guitarist just riffing and playing like a, a different style without the angst and the bullshit of guns and roses i can see an appeal to that now at this point of my life so maybe maybe i will get more into that going forward well i'm i'm so happy that you said some of those things i i really want to get chris's opinion on this before before i chime in because i'm going to have some i'm probably going to offer an opinion that will shock you guys but chris oh. what what's what's your thought on uh, on the slashes period after guns yeah so i mean i've i've loved what what slash you know slash's career has become and where he's at now and you know, in terms of, you know, what we were talking about earlier and, and like, you know, what is the identity of Guns N' Roses? Who is, what is Guns N' Roses? We can actually see these components separated out. And, you know, I'm in the firm belief that it is and always was Slash. Yep. He's, he's Guns N' Roses. And it's weird that, you know, Axel has the name because if anyone should have the name and should be allowed to bring in other people to just you know, fill in the other roles, it's Slash because it's, it's, he is the Guns N' Roses sound. He is the backbone of what made that band as great as they are, in my opinion. So in terms of, you know, I didn't pay much attention to Slash's Snake Pit because that was, that came off hot in the heels of like them breaking up. Yeah. And, you know, it was like all this weird stuff going on. And I was probably still Team Axel at that point. And, you know, I've gone back and listened to it, you know, since. And, you know, that's where he was, you know, each song is like with a different artist. Yeah, it was like an anthology album kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't really hang together as an album. There's some good stuff on there, but like as an album, you know, I'm not sure how well it works. Um, I echo Ryan's sentiments on uh, Velvet Revolver. I think that first album is great. And I've always had the same thought when that album came out is this is the Guns N' Roses album we've been waiting for. Yes. And, you <laughs> yes. know, as, as much, and, and I kind of agree with Ryan because as much as I think ultimately, I think Axl Rose in the end is maybe, you know, a mediocre talent. I think if there was a more mediocre talent, it was Scott Weiland. And so in terms of his craftsmanship as a songwriter and a singer, I'm like, Axl Rose definitely could have improved on what he brought to the table. And even still, and again, because Slash is the backbone, uh, you know, and you had Duff in the mix too, obviously, 
I mean, they still they still crafted great songs. I mean, you know, Slither is is you know, I mean, th- that's just a Guns N' Roses song. And again, I mean, if you imagine what that could have been, it set me free. Guns N' Roses song, and she builds quick machines from the second. Oh, album. love that song! And, and so, such great songs, and like wow, imagine Axel at the helm on these, you know, uh, as the lead singer on these. What that could have been, but they're still great, and that's because of Slash. So, yeah, love the first album. Excellent album. What was the follow-up Guns N' Roses album I had been waiting for? The second album was a little hit and miss, I thought. Some good stuff on there. Didn't quite hang together as much. But then when Slash started doing the solo stuff with uh, Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, that's really where, you know, I think it's, it's hitting the sweet spot for me in terms of who Slash is as an artist and what he brings to the table. And, you know, he, I don't know that any of those albums are great, they're good. They're really good. There's a lot of good stuff on those albums. The thing is, I don't know that Slash is really trying to make like great albums. I mean, not that he's trying to make bad albums, but in the sense that like where you know Axl Rose waits you know 15 years and spends 13 million dollars to you know re-record and fine tune. You know, Slash just wants to play. He just wants to get in the studio and just lay down some songs and that's good enough. I mean, a lot of those songs on those, you know, those three records they they've done together so far are fantastic. By the and way, again, they've recorded, they've recorded their fourth album during the quarantine. So there's going to oh, be nice. another, yeah, there's going to be another one coming out soon. Oh, great. Great. I'm looking forward to it. And I mean, yeah, th- th- yeah, those are, those albums are day one listens for me. I mean, as soon as they drop and, you know, because I'm, I'm just so interested in what slash is still doing and the way he is able to kind of stay within this narrow framework of, of this sound he's created, but just still find new ways to express it and to explore the sound and do cool, interesting things with it. Cause I mean, Slash has his own sound. I mean, you can tell when you're listening to a Slash song. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you Agreed. know, and what exactly, and what that is, is, you know, it, it's the Guns N' Roses song, the sounds. And that's yeah. what, that's what's missing from Chinese democracy. I mean, you know, it's funny how many guitar players. It's funny that like, he brought yeah. in a ton of guitar yeah. players because he was trying to rebuild Slash in the aggregate and he couldn't do it because there is no, I mean, Slash is that great. Yeah. And so there's such great musicianship on uh, some of those songs of Chinese democracy in terms of the guitar playing, but they're just, they fall flat for me. Doesn't sound like Guns N' Roses. It's, it's it's not Slash. Yeah. And Slash imbues his music, you know, with a lot of soul. And there's just, yeah, what what he what he does is great. And so I love, you know, Slash in his 50s, just touring, playing small clubs and cranking out albums of, you know, again, I don't know that it's great material, but it's damn good material. And it's like if he keeps doing this until he's 80 and, you know, we get. 20 more albums from him, I would be really, really happy. And, you know, Axl Rose can hang out in his mansion with his housekeeper and collect his, you know, urine in jars and never make music again. And I'm fine with that. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really the separation of what these two guys did since the band went their separate ways and where you know, it just all becomes clear, like, okay, Axl was the problem. And it's pretty clear that, you know, Slash was the major talent in the group that really cemented who they were and what their sound was. I think there's no better example of who he is as a person in terms of what his priorities are than the story that you told where Axel was literally holding them hostage before a show to sign away the rights to the name Guns N' Roses and Slash does it. And it's probably the dumbest business decision he could have made, but dude just wanted to play. He didn't give a shit. 
Yeah. He was like, we're already an hour late. Like, let's go fucking yeah. play. Yeah. And so and even now, he's like, you know what? I don't need to be Guns N' Roses. I'm just Slash, and I'm just going to do Slash. And that's what he's been doing. And I love him for it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, it's, I'm... I'm I'm very much on the same mind as you are. I would actually, I actually hold Slash's solo work with Miles Kennedy and Conspirators up probably on a higher, uh, higher esteem mm. than in higher esteem than you do. And here is kind of where I come down on the whole thing. And this might be an age thing. And what I mean when I say that is because I am an older person than I was in Guns N' Roses prime in Guns N' Roses peak. Right. Like the the danger and recklessness of that band at the time now annoys me as an adult. Whereas that, that when I was a kid, I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Axel won't play until he's got the right bandana, you know, that kind of stuff. Now right. I'm just like, you're an asshole. So there's I, I think so. I think what you described is actually really accurate. The way you just talked about Slash has a very workman approach to music now. And with this band, they're very much content with they're not playing stadiums with Miles Kennedy. He's playing the Palladium in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, they're playing mm-hmm. a, a, a 3000 seat venue at a club and they're cranking out albums and they're good. But I think you're probably right. He's not trying to recreate Guns N' Roses. He's going about it like a very blue collar work ethic kind of guy. Right. And and I love that. I love that now because it's like I'm it's consistent. I know what I'm getting. I appreciate now three albums in with Miles. I know what I'm getting as a singer. I know what I'm getting as a lyricist. And I know the way the band dynamic works where Slash writes absolutely everything and then brings it to the drummer and bass player to rehearse it and flesh out the structure of the song. And then the last thing they do is give it to Miles Kennedy. And they're like, okay, put lyrics on top of this. And they go out. So it's basically every single album is almost a slash solo album. I mean, uh, instrumental. It's very much, that's the way the band works. And I love that. And we've seen them a couple of times. You know, I've seen, I've seen them three times. I've seen, like, I just, I love it. Now, the last thing I want to say, which I, again, I'll veer off course from you a little bit is I find myself much more often listening to sla- like a slash and Miles Kennedy playlist on my iPhone or when I'm working out or when I'm running or when I'm lifting weights or whatever like that, I listen to that way more than I ever listen to guns and roses. Um, and I, I, I find that there are a lot of, Oh boy. I mean, if I had to choose, like if I said guns and roses had 20 great songs and all, half of it is appetite. But if mm-hmm. I had to say that they have 20 absolutely great songs, I probably equally would say slash has 20 great, Slash and Miles Kennedy songs. I mean, and I'm I'm talking about I'm putting them on the same part as some of Guns N' Roses best. I would say, and for for listeners out there, Ryan and Omar, you included, uh, guys that aren't familiar with some of this stuff, go check out Slash's solo work on the the song. Download the song Anastasia. Download or, or listen to Driving Rain. Listen to mm-hmm. My, Mind Your Manners. Listen to World on Fire. World on Fire, yeah, yeah, like, like, so, like those, those songs alone. Just go listen to those, and those are every bit as good as anything Guns N' Roses did. I, World on Fire is every every bit as good as Don't Damn Me, um, and and I put those kind of on the same parallel. And the cool thing about, and I mentioned this at the very beginning of the show, and I'm going to come back to this now as we wrap up this section. Um, there's a ton of video out there of Slash playing live with Miles Kennedy, professionally shot concert videos. They released, I think, even their 2018 tour, they did a Blu-ray uh, DVD release. Uh, uh, the There's so many full concerts 
available now. And if you watch, Slash has Slash is now a professional musician. Now that might not be as dangerous and reckless as the guy that I saw in 1988. That was like you thought was going to fall off the stage and unplugged his own guitar cord while he was trying to play. Like that guy was a mess. He was reckless and dangerous, and like as a kid, I wanted to be him. Slash now has settled into this guy. That's he's a professional musician, but. His he he like he'll do you know a ten minute guitar solo during Wicked Stone or he'll do a ten minute guitar solo in Rocket Queen or uh, you know a twenty minute blues guitar solo and stuff like he doesn't miss a single note. The guy is actually technically perfect right now in his fifties, and I think he's a better guitar player now than he ever was before. So that's kind of where I'm at on the whole gun on, on the whole slash thing. So for those of you, anybody listening that had, that isn't familiar with it, I know it's going to sound like blasphemy when I say slash the solo stuff is better than guns and roses. I'm not saying it's better. I'm saying it's on par and I'm going to kind of leave it there. So we're, we're, we're getting kind of down to it now. So that brings us, basically that brings us up through 2016 and the reunion that no one ever thought would ever happen. The appropriately named Not In This Lifetime Tour as Slash and Duff finally returned to Guns N' Roses with Axl Rose. So real quick, just go around the horn. Who Has anybody seen this tour? Chris, I know you have. Hey, Ryan, Omar, uh, Omar, have you guys seen it? No. No. Okay. I haven't seen the tour live yet. I was supposed to go. Chris invited me and I didn't make it and I, I couldn't go at a certain time. Chris, I think you've seen it how what three times? Oh no, just once. Just once, really? Okay. I thought yep. you saw it in Chicago and in LA. I was gonna see it in LA and then like yeah, I think I talked to you about it. I talked to you know another friend of ours about it and it just kind of fell apart and then my enthusiasm wasn't okay. that okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the tour yet live, but I've honestly probably watched about 50 hours worth of free videos from, from, from the two year run on YouTube. You can find all kinds of like the rock am Rio show and like, they're all over the place. You can find a ton of guns and roses live 2016 to 2018. You can find it and they're great and they sound great. And the band is as, as they're as tight as ever. I, I mentioned this before. I think Richard Fortas fills the role of Izzy perfectly. And I already mentioned that. I think Slash is better now than he ever was. Being sober, I do believe, has helped him and Duff tremendously. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of front-loading this question here as I go around the horn one more time. Chris, you and I have talked about this. Omar and Ryan, we haven't talked about this yet. But I keep hearing rustlings about now that they've played together and they've squashed all beefs and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's in the good graces. They're do like slash has mentioned before that, you know, they've rehearsed new songs, they've rehearsed new material and it's four years since they got back together and slash released a solo album in 2018 with miles Kennedy. And now he's done another album with miles Kennedy that isn't out yet, but it's coming out. So I kind of, you know, again, it's like, like, are Guns N' Roses ever going to release another album? 
and I, I don't know how, where, where does everybody fall in? I mean, for those of you guys that haven't seen the reunion tour now that you know, they're back together, I guess, you know, where do you, how do you feel about them now? I, I kind of don't care. <laughs> Fair enough. No, so it's uh, like, I mean, <laughs> this kind of goes back to the question that Chris was asking before, which is what is guns and roses? And to me, I think you need both parts. I think you need Axel and Slash to be Guns N' Roses. Um, I, I, I don't, I mean, if Axel has the, the legal claim to the name or whatever, and he can re- do Chinese democracy without Slash, does it sound like a Guns N' Roses album without Slash? No. no. I mean, when we listened to Velvet Revolver, did we not think, wouldn't this sound cool with Axel Rose? Absolutely. I mean, so I, I think both of them are essential. I also think that they they are they are equally cursed by the legacy of their greatness and mm. and how towering an achievement appetite for destruction was that that's something that is just that made them rock and roll legends um mm-hmm. and to do that your first you know your your first time at bat then that's you know that that's something that's they they try to live up to and it, it, I mean, I think Omar pointed out, it's like they really were the biggest band, the greatest band, but just for a couple of years. It was like four or five years. And then, you know, they maybe they should have just broken up and they, they should have just got like if if Axel could have just started a new band and, and if if Slash should have, his other stuff had been equally as popular or success. But you also had the changing landscape of popular music changed right at that same time that they were breaking up because of grunge and hip hop and, and what the latter half of the nineties would turn into. So they just weren't relevant. Um, and, and to now to try and chase that relevancy, it's just like you're different people, you're different people and your audience is different now. So I, I mean, if I got a chance to see them live, yeah, I might do it almost as a novelty. I mean, I don't see a whole lot of live shows anymore, but if they were in this area and it wasn't super expensive, I would I'd go see them live just to say I saw Guns N' Roses with at least a good chunk of the original lineup. That would be a good show. If they record another album, uh, I mean, I, I don't... And again, I, I, I recognize the contradiction inherent in what I'm saying because of my love for the use your illusion albums and how much of it is held up on this pedestal of Axel's angst and his yeah. insecurities and his heartbreak or his just, again, Pretension. I go back to his pretensions of <laughs> yeah. being angsty and heartbroken and all of these things, but really just kind of having this chip on his shoulder that may or may not be earned. Um, as much as I love that, again, that's, that's, that is still me feeling that connection when I was 16 years old to that type of writing. And I don't have that same way. Do I think Axl Rose has anything relevant to sing about today? No, honestly, I don't. <laughs> um, but, so, I mean, yeah, I, I would, I would just as rather, I mean, if, if we've seen these two artists who I think are central to Guns N' Roses, if we've seen where their tracks go and Axel's has devolved into kind of a, a caricature of himself or what he used to be. And Slash has just taken on a more quiet, sophisticated, mature, adult-sounding competency, then, yeah, certainly I think he has more to offer as a musician. I would rather have Slash just do his own thing. But 
I can't deny it's not going to excite me the same way as as my feelings of Guns and Roses back together. But no, I, I I think if there's if if there's this band has anything to offer, I would rather see a live show of them doing their greatest hits than engage with a brand new album of material that I can't imagine is going to connect with me. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's probably why the reunion tour has lasted about three years. <laughs> this is the highest grossing single tour in history because they just keep going out year after year playing the same old stuff. Omar, you want to jump in? Yeah, real quick. I, I think Ryan articulated pretty well. Like I am um, to the extent I care at all. Like I, in my, as I've gotten older, I just want everyone in general to get along. Uh, so I am happy that they are in a position where they can, sort of be collegial with each other and play together. Um, and I think that, do I think there will be another album? Well, you know, Neil, you lay out the chronology of the last few years. I mean, yeah. one would think if there were ever a time that would be right for them to jump on board and get recording, especially with the supposed troves and troves of material that Axel has <laughs> stashed away, like you would think that like they would do that. And then you would also imagine that like, market forces would almost demand it right because that's just what people do but like i will admit as i contemplate it like on the one hand like i have no interest in it like like again the van halen parallel like i was very excited to hear van halen's album when david lee roth rejoined and when they went back on tour because again there was a there's a whimsy and a tongue-in-cheekness to the way to what they do that it's like all right i, I can i can hear these knockoffs and i can be pleasantly surprised and it ended up being quite a good record you know, with these guys, it's like when you talk about Axel's ambitions and how he swings for the fences in his lyrics and his craftsmanship, like, you know, we've been slagging on his talent uh, over the course of these last couple hours. But like, you know, look, I do think he has elements of like a, a musical prodigy and elements of genius. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the problem was the circuit breakers that kept him in check, like like Slash and Izzy left. And so, like, you know, all of his worst instincts were able to be kicked in. And, like, now I just feel like it's just too much damn time has, has elapsed where I just don't think he's going to be able to be disciplined enough to be great. And, like, he's going to be 60 next February. Like, <laughs> I don't know how many 60-year-olds can sort of write from, you know, the perspective of an experience that's going to, like, capture the zeitgeist quite as much as like the 24 25 year old axel rose did like axel rose's very presence and being and songwriting quality was all about like being young and dangerous and reckless and it's just hard for me to imagine someone who's basically lived a life of almost like comical like isolation of the past like 20 or 25 years has anything particularly interesting to say. Part of that is just the fact that Axel burnt the candles at both ends and just probably doesn't, isn't left with a lot in terms of like observational quality. And secondly, I just think in a realm like music and just like with other areas where there are geniuses like chess and math, it's like you do your best work before you're 30. You do your best work before you're 30. And if you're as competent and as good a craftsman as like a Paul McCartney or a Bono, you can make, very nice sounding contemporary albums that are pleasant and cool to an extent without embarrassing yourself, but you're never really capturing your, your um, Abbey road or rock tongue baby, but you're not embarrassing yourself. I think with Axel, like all bets are off. So like, Bye. I have no interest in revisiting that. And like, I wouldn't even be that interested in seeing them live. Like I'll take your word for it, Neil, but like, 
I, you know, the, the, the magic of Guns N' Roses was in lay in their youth. And yeah, how yeah. visceral an experience it was. I have no interest in seeing the Jowly versions now. I'm happy that they get along. Uh, that's all I can hope for. Um, Chris, before I come to you, I think it's really funny what Omar just said about Axel turning 60. Because I remember, I'm having the distinct memory of during our Van Halen podcast, you were tearing about Sammy, H- Sammy Hagar for writing about wanting to get laid at 40. So right. I, can only, I can only imagine Axel at 60. What, you know, like, does anything you say, like, are you going to try to appeal to the teens now, dude? Like, you know, like, where <laughs> all right, what, uh, Chris, what do you, what do you think? You've seen this tour. You, you're yeah, familiar yeah. with it. And I think, by the way, just to you know, kind of answer your rhetorical question there, I think it's kind of an interesting question in terms of the context that that Omar provided there is like what you know, and we saw a little bit of it with with Chinese democracies. What the hell does Axel have to say? This dude lives, you know, uh, he, he he's he, he's a hermit. He he doesn't yeah, interact yeah. with the world. What could he possibly have to say that isn't just all about him? And you know, we're past the point. I think collectively as fans where it's just like we don't really care about how you're feeling axel i mean write something else dude so yeah um you know it's interesting is is i i I had kind of an epiphany when i when i did see them in concert i saw them in chicago and you know the whole time like leading up to it i kind of had this weird nagging feeling that i wasn't excited enough and i'm like why am i not excited by this this is like you know I mean, it's like 30 years in the making, you know, 25 years. Mm-hmm. They're finally back together. This should be epic for me. And I wasn't feeling that. And, you know, the show was was good. I mean, it was probably even great. I mean, you know, I mean, they played for four fucking hours. Right. So it was also was exhausting. But they played every damn Guns N' Roses song you're going to want to hear. And then about you know, eight songs you don't want to hear. And, <laughs> and, you know, but, but, you know, the whole thing kind of left me cold, you know, cause like when, when I came back to LA and like, we were talking about going to see it and like yeah. the timing didn't work out. I let it go pretty quickly. Cause I was just like, you know, I don't know if I want to stand there for four hours hearing those songs again. And it, you know, I guess the, the easiest way to say it is, you know, the time has passed. It's just, it's, you know, I'm not sure what this band, who they were and what they were, whatever that was, it's gone now. And you can't, you can't recreate it. And getting back together now and, you know, and I, I referred to it earlier as kind of a Vegas review because it is. It's just them doing their greatest hits. The musicianship is great. Slash has a, you know, a couple of great solos. And, you know, and, and to your yep. point, I agree with you, Neil. I think he is, he is a musician now, a professional mu- musician, and he is a much more technical and skilled player than he ever was in his youth. And, you know, that, and that's, that's really great to see, but in terms of, you know, who they are now and if we're going to get more music from them and what that's going to be, I mean, I, I do think there's an interesting parallel that Brian brought up with the Indiana Jones movie, which is like, <laughs> you know, cause 2008 was a rough fucking year. First Chinese democracy, or actually first was kingdom of crystal skull, then Chinese democracy. It was just like a one, two gut punch. Oh man. But, it's it's like you know we've been hearing the rumblings about they're going to get together and release a new album. Meanwhile, we've been hearing rumblings about there's going to be a fifth Indiana Jones movie, and my thought is the same on both. Which is you know when you guys did this in 2008, it was already past the point of being relevant then. Right. What what the hell could it possibly be now? 
So it's like, yeah, not only do I not think it's going to happen, not only would I not be excited about it if it did, I actively don't want it to happen. Because if it did, I know I'd have to listen to it. And I, you know, I, I, the curiosity would get the better of me. And then you're embroiled in that whole thing of like dissecting this and what does this mean? And, you know, what, and I kind of don't want that. I'm just like, I'm, I'm done with that. You know, like I'm happy to have Slash just keep churning out solo albums. And that gives me as much of a Guns N' Roses fix at this point in my life that I need. And I, I'm kind of sick of hearing them. I mean, it's like every six months they, they're announcing they're back in LA. I'm like, Jesus Christ. I mean, give it up. All right. I, I mean, I guess they're making yeah. the money, so they're not going to, but I, I, I'm, I'm sick of hearing about it. I, I saw them. It's over. It's done. Like that was like the kind of the culmination and what that iteration of the band ever could be now. And that was it. I saw it. They played all their songs. I'll give credit where credit is due. Axel, you know, vocally got himself in shape. He was hitting the notes he needed to hit. He's straining a lot more than he used to to get there, but he's getting there. And, you know, the musicianship is as sharp and crisp as it ever was, if it's not better. And they, they put on a good show. But that's it. That's that's the curtain call for me. I mean, in, in terms of what you know, Guns N' Roses is or ever was. I'm I'm done with them now. They they are an artifact for me now of of my youth, and I can enjoy that for what it is. And but they are not relevant as a band, and I'm not interested in anything they would have to be or say as a band at this point. Got it. I think you know. For me, um, I think I think I bought into the hype of the reunion in 2016, but unlike what Van Halen did, which was when they got together, they put out another album immediately. I think guns and roses had a short window of time where everybody, and I mean, I mean, I was hyped for the reunion. I could not believe that they were back together and I would have bought anything that they wanted to do at that moment. And here we are five years after the fact, Mm -hmm. and they've been playing their greatest hits for five fucking years. And I think that that ship has sailed. I agree with you too, where if they were going to get in the studio and put something new out, they should have done it without telling anybody and then drop the album. When you announce that you're back together, that would have been the way to do it. And, you know, it's disappointing because it's a blessing and a curse. I want to say because of Slash's solo work, because on the on the good hand, I've got Slash's solo work to tide me over every time. I don't need another Guns N' Roses album. I don't need it right. because Slash's right. solo stuff is fantastic. I get I get his new album every time the day it comes out every time, and I love it. Um, but I'm always left with that kind of lingering afterthought, which we've talked about. I think all four of us have it maybe mentioned that you know it, it. But it could have been a Guns N' Roses. And the other thing, you know, it's like Chinese democracy. Axel tried to change the scope of what Guns N' Roses. He was trying to compete with modern music and use more electronica and industrial stuff. You know, this weird stuff. Slash still sounds like Guns N' Roses. So it's right. kind of like you know, there's a part of you that's just kind of like, oh, if Axel could have only got his shit together. Every new Guns N' Roses, you know, Velvet Revolvers album and Slash's solo work, those all could have been GNR albums. And they didn't lose a beat if they were. You know, in terms of the songs, Slash plays the, Slash is as good now and hasn't changed and veered off the course. And he didn't, you know, we talked about this with Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen and his, you know, with the Balance album just didn't sound like them anymore. You know, whereas the Slash's stuff sounds like it could be GNR. And right. so it's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, but I think I'm, I'm, I do, I have come full circle to what all of you have said, which is at this point now, 
five years after they got back together and they've been playing greatest hit shows and they've been playing the same set list too, by the way, for five years. They haven't yes. added anything new to it. So, you know, at this point now, I'm kind of, I'm Chris, I'm, I'm with you. I'm like, okay, get over it. I've done it. You know, I, I, I would not pay money to go see them live now because there's so much video on YouTube of their shows where I could go see it, you know, rather than pay, you know, a certain amount of money to sit in the bleachers of Dodger Stadium and, you know, whatever, like that. I'm just, I'm not about that anymore. And kind of like what you said, Chris, I think like I'm almost teetering on hoping they don't put out something new now because I don't want that to hurt any of the goodwill that I have in my heart. The fact that they got back together and I never thought it would happen. So, you know, there's kind of a part that's like, don't ruin it. Don't don't put out something bad. You know, don't don't put an album out that just sucks. You know, that would be that would be terrible. tie everything up from from my perspective it's like and related to the last point neil that you made it's like this is a very morbid thing to suggest but like the guns and roses trajectory from like 87 to like 93 94 like is such that if like axel and or slash had like od'd it actually and this is terrible but like it actually would have been perfect and logical like it would have been like okay like hard living fast living like you know, this this monstrous talent that just sort of like was this blazing star for a couple of years and they they went out in as blinding a fashion as they came in. That it would have been like very appropriate. But this weird like twenty-five I actually, year I actually agree. I just want to jump in real quick. I agree. Sure. I agree if it was just Axel you were talking about. I would okay, agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slash I'm happy with I'm happy with what your, Slash has done since then. Your but, argument about about Slash's like, you know, craftsmanship and his yeah. evolution. No, no, let me let me say focus that on Axel. But like yeah. understand that like Agreed, that but, was the trajectory that like would have made sense. And of course I am happy that like he is alive and seemingly healthy and everything. But like it's just that the last 25, 26 years of like stops and starts and misinformation and like isolation and rumors and like half-hearted you know, results has just kind of clouded um, an otherwise unimpeachable legacy. And, and, you know, I just think you look at that five-year run and it's like, in terms of cultural impact on the music scene, I would put that run right up there with like what the Stones did from Beggar's Banquet through Exile on Main Street, even if the actual music itself wasn't quite as good consistently as like that four or five album run by the Stones. Like, In terms, of, but if you bottle up that that time period, mm-hmm. it's like fucking unparalleled in terms of what they achieved. And you know, I just think the the tragedy. And again, like there are real tragedies in this world, and like everyone in the band is alive and healthy and seemingly doing okay. So I don't want to blow it out of proportion. But like, it is very unfortunate that like 
it wasn't a more longer legacy defining run because as much as we've all ragged a little bit on Axel's talent and the borders and limits thereof, like if when he had like the slashes and the Izzy's like keeping him in check and tempering his bullshit, like as so perfectly epitomized on appetite for destruction, like he was a genius. I think like everything in its right proportion with each other. It was a, like a very towering lineup, a very formidable lineup. And you know, that, 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 that is a five-year run of creativity and legacy and impact that is unparalleled. Now, I think that like when you get deeper into the nineties, yes, the Nirvana's and the Pearl Jam's and the Seattle sounds like would have like dented their legacy, no matter if they had stayed together, but I would have liked the opportunity for them to like put up a fight because by the time that like, you know, like Radiohead's okay computer came out, I would have looked at my guns and roses ardent fandom and been embarrassed because Mm. Not just of the like the, the musical evolution that bands like Radiohead were like putting out, but also because I you know, REM's guitarist Peter Buck once said of Guns N' Roses, he called them like a Benny Hill parody of what a rock and roll band should be. And like if if this had been the if someone had said that in like 87 or 88 and I had been of age, like I would have threatened to like fight them. Yeah. But like that was true by the time you got to the mid-90s and the late 90s. And I think it's a damn shame. And I think it would have been better if they had just gone out in a place of glory or made an honest to goodness attempt to like get his head out of his ass and actually make an, you know, make an attempt to like have a legacy defining run. Um, so like when I look at their legacy overall, like it's fine, but because of the 25 years of bullshit, like I think that they end up being less significant than they could have been and should have been. So my ultimate conclusion is very much like Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen, you left the field, like you did not leave everything on the field. And yeah. given the prodigious talents of everyone involved, like that is very unfortunate. Yeah, I think I think I, I if if I can kind of paraphrase what you're saying, everything I would actually agree with you that I think had Axel like somehow tragically checked out after you know before the spaghetti incident after the usual yeah. illusion tours, I think it would have been perfect. Axel Rose would be held in a higher regard than Kurt Cobain yep. is now. Yep, his legacy would have been perfect. Again, we don't wish that on anyone. It's no, good of course. that, that no, didn't happen. Yeah, but I'm just saying I, from a narrative standpoint, from like in terms of like the creativity that was left and all like the yanking, yanking around that's been done to us for the past like quarter century. It's like, well, you were the type of band that should have gone out in a blaze of glory. And instead, we're left with the four of us, basically our collective reaction to Chinese democracy and this reunion in 2016 being like, eh. and yeah. that's just not how Guns N' Roses should have been remembered. Yeah, what's the dark? The line from the Dark Knight: "Either see yourself because what? Uh, how's it you going? Die a hero, or you live die a hero, or live long enough? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's it's kind of that. Ryan, um, I mean, as as Neil Young said, better to burn out than fade away. Yeah, right. absolutely, absolutely. Ryan, what uh, what lasting thoughts? Anything you want to throw um, in the hat? First, first, a a, a question just to get because it's something that I, I keep forgetting to bring this up earlier, but I wanted to mention when we talked about the the spaghetti incident, and then you mentioned that they also had that cover of Sympathy for the Devil that played during the credits of Interview with a Vampire. Yep. Like, what percentage of Guns N' Roses total like album output was cover songs? You know, for as much as they were like wow. writing original stuff, like they had <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, um, they, yeah, that's that's interesting for you know they put out a solo a, a completely full cover album. Yeah, like twenty percent of all their recordings. Yeah, are then they had basically. then they had uh, you know a couple of EPs with cover songs, and you know they did right. Mama Kin by uh, Aerosmith. They, yeah, they had. Yeah, 
anyway, anyway, that just kind of occurred to me. I didn't really have anything here or there. Um, yeah, my final thoughts. I know that I am the the weird outlier um, because I, I am the guy. Like, when I think of Guns and Roses, my first thought is the Use Your Illusions, which no, I, I can't imagine anybody else who would consider themselves a Guns and Roses fan would ever do that. Um, and, and it's it's not girls would. Um, (laughs) it's not not something i can wrestle like easily like reconcile or rationalize because it's just axel as a microcosm for the band itself it's like they they just struck gold when their first you know like hit their first album and then it's like a filmmaker who just got this unlimited budget after their first you know cult hit first movie and then they just had no idea what to do with all that money, but they just kept spending it on more and more production stuff. And it just became so unwieldy and, and, and crazy. Um, but it is, I mean, that's, that's the stuff about Guns N' Roses that I love. It is the, the piano ballads in the Use Your Illusions. It is all the extra orchestrations. It is the, you know, uh, 10 minute songs that might have three verses and like interspersed <laughs> with just like these musical movements, like operatic movements in between them. Hashtag um, release the axle cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to make that comparison, but I knew it was just there. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, like they, they conquered the, the hard rock heavy, like scene with their first album seemingly effortlessly. And then Axel was like, let's conquer, you know, another, another genre and just kept throwing it more and more. I can't explain it. I just, those songs, because of my age and, and where I was at when I first really dove into those two albums in high school, they, they hit me on this really personal level that still sort of resonate in a way I can, I can throw myself back to that age and still enjoy them uh and that is why i am able to slide by some of the more embarrassing parts of their their history and and their songwriting styles um but yeah also as as i I think chris put it it is an artifact um it is a band that for me i mean they they existed in the late 80s and early 90s for like five years and might as well have retired and died there yeah, I, like if I saw them again live for a novelty, that w- that's all it would be. But I don't think they have anything else to contribute now a- as a group, as an as an entity that we think of as Guns N' Roses, which again, I think of is as much Axel as it is the rest. Um, yeah, Ryan, real quick before Chris, we come to you. I, Ryan, I actually, believe it or not, though, I, I will agree with you on the on, in terms of the use or lose. I don't want you to think that I'm also poo-pooing on those two albums compared to Appetite. The one thing I always will appreciate, and I kind of referenced this earlier, but I, like, I like a fact that when a band is as big as they are, and a few bands have done this before, but when a band, you know, when you think a band is at the peak of their fame, that they aspire to be bigger. And I think that that, you know, I will always reward somebody for taking an artistic chance when, you know, by even if it comes at the at the point of, you know, being unable to self-edit and putting out way more material with, you know, some good, some bad, when you could have had a more cohesive album. I do, you know, after Appetite for Destruction made Guns N' Roses the biggest band in the world, they were not content to just stay there. 
I love the fact, and I will always love the fact that then they put out two albums on the same day and made everybody go out and get them. Like there was that, there's something about this. So I'm always going to, I will always give them credit for taking that shot, you know, for wanting to be bigger than they were. And I think that was cool. Um, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with, you know, most of what you guys have said and especially, you know, with the usual illusion albums. I mean, you know, my, my opinions and feelings about those albums, it's complicated. And a lot of it has to do, and and the, and the shitty part is it's not, it can't, it's not just about the music. It's about everything surrounding it. And then the legacy of the band and what happened afterwards because yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pretension. There's a lot of uh, indulgence on those albums, but would have been forgivable if two, three years later another album comes out yes. and then another one. Well, they, yeah, they absolutely. Yeah, you know they didn't they didn't really earn the pretension or the indulgence. I think one thing to make clear, and I think Ryan, you made this point, is we keep saying like you know lamenting, you know what Guns N' Roses could have been, or they you know they they didn't quite get where they needed to go, or they left something on the table. I mean, when we say that, we are talking about Axl Rose. It's a hundred percent. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it just is. I mean, that's 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 what history tells us at, at this point. As we look back on everything that happened, he's the one that destroyed that man. He is the one that tarnished their legacy. You know, with all of his antics and all of his bullshit, and it's just for me. It's just come to this point where, like, it's been so long that all the conversations about what could have been, like, I'm over it now. It's like, you know, it's like uh, that girl you had a crush on in high school coming to you and saying, hey, I'm really sorry that we didn't, you know, ever get together. And I'm like, who are you again? I mean, it's like it's been so long now that none of it matters. So, you know, they, and again, like I said, it ex- Guns N' Roses exist to me as an artifact of my youth. And they yep, had that yep. one bright shining moment you know perfect flawless moment with appetite for destruction as far as i was concerned you can never take that away from them i have that album framed and hanging on my wall and i mean it's one of the greatest albums ever recorded and as far as i'm concerned that is their legacy you know use your illusion one and two or a mixed bag everything after that is kind of a write-off and in terms of what the band means for me now it's more about the parts of the band and what they became and most of that, as I said, is focused on Slash and his work. And so if anything has risen, you know, from the ashes of Guns N' Roses that I think made it all worthwhile, it is the musician that Slash turned out to be and how much enjoyment that I'm still getting out of what he does. And it may not be Guns N' Roses and it was never going to be Guns N' Roses, but it's really great stuff. And he's an epically talented guy. And as far as I'm concerned, that makes it all worthwhile. And, you know, when, whatever happens with this tour they're on now, and I, I'm just hoping that they, 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 they end it. Axel <laughs> goes back and Axel goes back into seclusion and then slash just goes back to doing with his, his housekeeper thing. and family. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> like, you know, cause like I said, I, I, I'm not interested in more guns and roses music, whatever the hell form that would take. And, you know, it, it, it's over. And, they, you know, they had their moment, the moment's gone, and we have what we have now. And what we have now in terms of what Slash is doing is, is pretty damn good. And it's not just they had their moment, like he threw their moment away. 
Oh yeah, yeah, he, yes. he, 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 yeah. He set their moment on fire and then yeah, pissed like on the that's ashes. why it's yeah. just not like something got away from them. This was like exactly a, almost deliberate exactly. choice by him, which is why I'm much less willing to like want to revisit it because it's just well, so exhausting. Well, you guys, you exactly. guys have actually done a really good job of kind of wrapping up like where I was. I was kind of tossing around the idea of like, do I want to ask you guys where they rank in terms of rock music history and, and stuff like that? And I think you guys have all kind of answered that question so to speak you know I, in terms of legacy like i feel like unfortunately axel rose himself has done more damage to the band's legacy over time than you know than any of them anybody else did you know it's yeah. slash is so far single-handedly keeping them relevant but aside from that i think you guys summed it up perfectly axel rose just kind of he had the world in his hand and he fucking threw up on it so you know that's Kinda, I bet so, you Billie Eilish could name one Guns N' Roses song. <laughs> and that's on Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah. That's not her yeah. fault. Yeah, exactly. No, no, it's it's actually true. So, you know, yeah. for, for that brief moment in time, I was obsessed with them, and they were the biggest band in music, and they were the Beatles of hard rock at that particular moment. And, you know, whatever. One guy in the band ruined it. Yeah, and like that's fine. Like sometimes, sometimes bands have a long legacy. Sometimes they're just like a shooting star, and like that's fine. Like, like I don't, I'm not embarrassed by being a huge fan of them back in the day. There are some, there are some what ifs, and like they're so talented. Their talent was almost transcendent, and and so like it is interesting to play that theoretical game. But like, so much time has gone on, gone by that it's like, all right, Right. well, it is what it kind of is what it is. Yeah, I like to kind of I, I I do this just in my own head for some reason, but I like I like to do these hypotheticals, and I keep falling on this. Had Guns had everything Velvet Revolver and Slash did solo wise been Guns and Roses? If the band, uh, you know, minus Izzy leaving and Steven Adler, you know, being fired, had the band stuck together and everything else been Guns and Roses albums, I would say that that's probably my favorite band of all time. And it's just unfortunate that Axel couldn't keep it together. And so they're, they're, you know, that's, that's where it is. I want to thank you guys for joining me on this trip back in time. You know, when we last all got together and did this, I, I, we did the Van Halen show. And unfortunately we had just lost Eddie Van Halen right before that. So it was the retrospective was more of a, mourning process a grieving process so it's nice to actually kind of do a legacy type of show on a band that's still fingers crossed sort of you know seems like it seems like it's on a happy trajectory or a happy a happy ending we should say you know if they well i would say we've been grieving in a different way for them many many years right right yeah if if, hopefully though they can tie this all up with a nice bow and just kind of disappear into the night um, now, whether I, mean, I think I've been mourning Tom this entire conversation, but I think you have. That's that's about the tenth time you've name dropped him right now, so I'm starting to wonder. Um, <laughs> now, I would have been happy to see Guns N' Roses do another album five years ago. I'm not now, and Slash has done two albums since then, so I truly don't believe that they will ever release another album with Guns N' Roses. Um, I don't know if they could ever re- coexist in the studio again, but that's fine. They're back together, they're playing together, and they seem to be getting along fine. So whatever maybe maybe there's just nothing left in the tank and it is what it is but i do enjoy this trip down memory lane i enjoy where you guys are coming from chris you and i are of the same kind of age so we 
got into them at the same time. Ryan and Omar, I enjoy hearing where you guys came from being, you know, 10 years younger than us and and yet still discovering things on your own. Um, so thanks again. This was fun. I want to thank my co-host tonight, Chris Omar, my brother Ryan, and everybody at home listening to another Firewater Records podcast. Um, anybody else want to say anything else before we go? Just to sum up this podcast, I think we all agree, fuck Axl Rose. I think, it's really- <laughs> I think we all came down on the same place on that one. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support this show by leaving a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Every review for Fire and Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening and fuck you guys for not inviting me on the show. <laughs> <laughs>